2: Quand je vous vois, marbre bleu
1: ah.
3: the projection booth i'm your host mike white joining me is miss heather drain
4: the future is behind me
3: and also with us this week is mr chris stashu
0: greetings
3: this week we're talking about jacques Rivette's 1974 film celine and julie go boating the film stars dominique laborier as julie and counterintuitively juliette berteau as celine it's going to be difficult to summarize this one in just a few words and we'll try to unwrap this candy during the episode but it's a story of magic friendship and much much more of course, we're going to get into spoilers on this episode. You should pretty much accept that at this point if you're going to listen to the projection booth. Unfortunately, this film is not easy to find, in the United States at least. We'll be talking about that too as we dive into Celine and Julie go boating. Chris, when was the first time you saw Celine and Julie, and what did you think?
0: I saw it in its complete form for the first time actually yesterday, and I absolutely loved it. It was an immersive. It's definitely like a very immersive, magical film. There's something very just brilliant and yet childlike about it at the same time. And uh, it floored me. It absolutely floored me. I, I thought it was fantastic.
4: I saw it down at the Detroit Film Theater, I think, last year or the year before. And it was one of those movies that I had always wanted to see, but there are certain movies where it's like, okay, this thing is going to be an experience, a three and whatever half hour movie. I was like, yeah, really? I don't think I can just sit in my living room and watch that. So when I had the opportunity to kind of be not necessarily locked in a theater, but put in a theater with very uncomfortable seats where it was tough to get in and out like the Detroit film theater has, I said, okay, sure, let's do it. So it's kind of like, you know, I missed the cream Master cycle when they showed that at the Detroit Film Theater. I think that would have been kind of the same thing. Like, let's subject ourselves to this. I have to say that three and a half hours goes by really quickly when you watch Celine and Julie. I did not have a problem with the length of it. That's what she said! I saw this actually with my wife and my mom, of all people. And neither one of them seemed to have a problem with the length of it either. And, you know, I talked a couple weeks ago on the Apocalypse Now episode... Andrea, not a big fan of the three-and-some-hour redux version of that, calling it three hours of suck, but luckily she didn't call this three-and-a-half hours of pretension. So she rewatched it again yesterday with no problem, so that was kind of a nice thing.
3: I have an interesting story about the first time I watched this film. That would be yesterday, the evening. You mentioned that it's hard to find in the United States, and you, Mike, gave me and Heather the ability to watch it through Dropbox. Uh, Because the power of the the magic of technology, what a what a time to be alive. But it was split up into two parts and I would have to watch it on my computer. And I came to the similar kind of assessment that I can't sit at my computer and watch this film (laughs) for three hours because I will start doing other things. And it's not that's not the way I operate. So I spent two hours getting the movie prepped, subtitles burned in to be able to watch a three hour movie on my Apple TV in my basement total time getting to the point where the movie was done was about five hours of work so this was like one of those like the more effort you put into it the more you get out of it it is my first french surrealist film and i don't know if i like surrealism but i appreciate surrealism for what it is i'm not sure if it's like something i would watch just like oh i want to see this movie but i appreciate what rivette was going for or may not have been going for from some of the other stuff that I, I've been reading about the film. So I definitely I definitely appreciated it, but it's got so much going on that I think for a lot of people, it is would be extremely overwhelming.
4: Well, it's fascinating to read the reviews of the film. They jump right to the whole thing with the other house with that. Really, I think it's... It's like 90 minutes into the film before we actually start going into the other house. So there's like 90 minutes worth of movie, a normal sized movie, before we get into the thing that most of the reviewers that I read, at least, would jump right into. So it was just like, okay, the, like as I'm rewatching it yesterday, I, of course, I remember the stuff with the house being at the forefront. But as I'm watching the first 90 minutes, I'm just like... Oh, yeah, yeah, it does take a while for us to get there. And we get hints of stuff as we go through the rest of the film. But it takes a a while for us to set up who the characters are, what their relationship is, what they do in the world, all these kind of things. And I don't know, I might have been okay with just that as a movie unto itself. But then when you add in the other 90 minutes of the film, 90 and some, then it, it takes on this whole different aspect to it.
0: I mean, it is funny how it's like, it's almost like you have two sections, two almost very clean sections, because you do have like the first 90 minutes where you're basically getting to know Celine and Julie, you know, and getting to kind of get an idea of their, of this like strange sort of fantastical universe that these two live in and how they're switching roles. I absolutely love the scene where um, you find out that Celine had like a childhood romance with her cousin and now he's a grown man and they're going to reconnect. And then like Julie impersonates or Celine imp- impersonates Julie and meets him and they have this great romantic dance. And then like, you have all this, this, strange Dada dialogue. I mean like a lot, so this style totally reminded me of like, you know, you read like early like Dada poetry. And with my favorite being homosexual spleens in the closet, Disguised as Alsatians. I'd play <laughs> <I was> like- <laughs> If you just told me if you told me nothing about this film other than that it has the line about how homosexual spleens in the closet disguised as Alsatians, I would be sold. I'm like, that's it. I don't care it's three hours. I wanna know what movie would have this line in it. I mean <laughs> that is fantastic. There's such a great whimsy and I don't know, I mean to me I was like I was like you, Mike. The three you know, I'm I've always been someone where length doesn't really matter to me if the film is good and it flows well. And this film just has such a nice breezy flow to it that you don't really, you know, you don't really notice it. And in fact, you you keep wondering like, what else is going to happen? Cause you just have like, it's almost like, you know, you have the candy being unwrapped, but the whole film is like a piece of candy, little moments of candy being unwrapped here and there. And um, I mean, it's fantastic. This is a film you could probably watch like five times in a row and find something new that you missed. It's really fascinating.
3: I would agree that everything that I had read They're just kind of like, yeah, the first 90 minutes, it's pretty much just like Alice in Wonderland. And, you know, they're, you know, Julie is following Celine through the streets and there's not much to it. There's a little bit of imagery. I mean, even Wikipedia, which I use just to kind of refresh myself going into something like this, you know, a podcast. It's like four sentences and whole scenes are condensed down into and she she goes on a, a, a date with the childhood sweetheart. That's it. The first 90 minutes of the film, for me, were the best part because it had a lot of imagery and a lot of character development. The latter 90 minutes, that for me was not as interesting. It was okay, but the first 90 minutes where you're kind of seeing the relationship between the two characters kind of blossom and... Are they lovers you know what kind of their relationship is and Celine filling in for Julie and Julie filling in for Celine I think that was more interesting for me than when it kind of transitions to the the house maybe I'm just easy to please I don't know
4: I love the whole connection between the two characters when we open them the movie we've got Julie on this park bench and we hear this like weird noise and I'm just like what the hell's going on and then finally we see that she's got her heel in the dirt and she's drawing this circle and I'm just like okay is this like a summoning thing cuz she's got a, a book of magic in uh, that she's reading practical application of magic or something and she's doing this thing with her heel and I'm just like okay is this like uh is she summoning something or is what going on and and then before we know it we've got Celine entering into the picture, and her coming through the the scene and going from uh, right to left and dropping some stuff, and then it becomes this whole like I can't say it's a chase scene because. Celine definitely knows that Julie is behind her. And it's more like Celine is just leading Julie through, through the city. And we get these great shots of Paris. We have most of it takes place in Montmartre. And so we have the whole funicular going up and Julie chasing along on the stairs. And I've, been on those stairs it is not an easy stair stair climb even when I was you know 24 years younger than I was that was not an easy climb so her hiking up those stairs is just like okay yeah she is really desperate to keep in pace with this other woman and then yeah just like they're kind of weird connections that they have like later on we see at the library where Julie works where she's putting red ink on her fingers and Making fingerprints onto a, a page, and then we've got Celine in the background. This kind of nice framing that we have, and she's tracing her hand in a red marker in one of the books. You know, which is not very nice for a thing to do in the library. Don't do that, kids. But it was nice that we have these connections. You know, and then we, of course, we get the red hand showing up in the the house. So it's almost like it almost feels like some of the house stuff is their fantasy and like a story that they're crafting together because we have Celine at one point talking about how she works at this house. And then it ends up that Celine grew up right near that house. Like that's one scene that I didn't see written down anywhere in any of these articles that I'm reading about is when she goes to visit the house and she can't get in and ends up going next door and there's, somebody that it seems like it was her nanny when she was growing up. And it seems like the house where she grew up, because the nanny's like, oh, yeah, I've got your room. It's exactly the same as it was. And I was just like, this is really strange. So it seems like there are all these connections to put them with the house before we even get there.
0: It's funny because I feel like I talk about films that have like what I call the Laurents factor effect a lot you know where things are circular but this film is like there's so many small circles within the big circle I mean you have the ultimate Laurent from the beginning and the end where it's like basically by the end of the film you know Celine's the one on the park bench And Julie's kind of racing through like a bat out of hell and dropping things. And it's like the journey begins again kind of thing. But then you do have all these like many connections. It's, It's so brilliant. It's like this whole universe that's been created. It's like anything is sort of possible, but not in a way that I think we're used to from fantasy films. When most people would ask what genre this is, I don't think fantasy would be the first thing they would say. But it is a total, you know, it is a complete just sort of like magical fantasy thing. And um, I thought the whole tarot scene in the library was really neat. And and there's like a lot of little clues in there where it's just, you know, where uh, Julie gets the hanged man and just there's the whole line about your future is behind you. And with, like, the whole interplay of time, of basically almost, like, pseudo time travel or time shifting with the house, once they become part of this whole, like, soap opera of the past, to me, it's just, it's very riveting. There's so much going on. And I thought just the uh, the two leads are so good. Like, you just are immediately just riveted by them and by their characters. And the characters are so whimsical that I think if you had lesser actresses, you would get annoyed. Really quick because it's kind of hard to pull off like childlike whimsy as an adult without seeming like either you did too much acid and you're a basket case <laughs> or you have like issues. Instead, it's just I don't know. It's the thing I, I found like there to be almost sort of like an innocence with Celine and Julie. Like, I never once thought they were lovers. I don't know. The sexuality when it gets mentioned in this film is done so very. I mean, the only reference really, other than like the soap opera thing with the, the house, which we'll get to in a bit, is like, you know, the whole thing with uh, Julie and her cousin. Even that just sounds just kind of ridiculous. Well,
4: it's funny. There was an article in Jump Cut back in, um, I don't remember what year it was, but it was uh, issue 2425, where Julie Lesage really wanted to read the film as a lesbian film. And I'm okay with that but she seemed very mad when it came to people not paying attention to that being an aspect of the film. But for me, I was kind of like you, I was just like, I'm not really thinking about their sexuality. Yeah. They're living together. They seem to have, you know, their own particular side of the bed when they're in bed and everything, but I'm not really necessarily thinking about their sex life. I'm more thinking about their friendship. So I felt kind of bad reading this article where I was just like, Well, yeah, I guess I'm kind of where a lot of other people are by not necessarily thinking that this is this lesbian relationship, but I don't know. I mean, can't women be friends in films and stuff? So I just kept thinking about like other women, you know, two women together kind of films. I was just like, well, you know, of course, this reminds me a lot of Daisies, and, you know, we'll talk a little bit about Desperately Seeking Susan later on and stuff, but I was just like, okay, you know, like, Thelma and Louise—they were friends. They weren't necessarily lovers. Uh, it kind of reminds me of that.
0: If your roommates are even hanging out with like a girlfriend, like you know, you're gonna change clothes. Somebody's gonna borrow the clothes. I don't know. It's just I didn't really think any. I didn't read anything at all like that. And I, I'm sorry because I feel bad that, that that this writer was upset. Because I mean, I think I think we're all three of us probably people where it's like no, there's none of us are homophobic. It's not like we're not reading into that for those reasons. It's just it's not really. It's trying to apply a theory to a situation that doesn't really call for it. I don't know if it's because we're so used to seeing in films where, you know, film and Louise, they have interests in dudes. Like, there's a love scene with the guy. And so it's like, if we don't see a woman automatically attached to a man, are we just going to assume she's a lesbian? I mean, that's a little... That's a bit much.
4: The one thing that I saw was possibly the whole idea with the cousin and the way that Celine portrays herself as Julie and kind of gets rid of the cousin. Like, is that her getting rid of her romantic rival? I don't necessarily see that. I see him as being very much a gadfly and just being a real pain in the ass. So she's kind of doing her friend a favor by getting rid of this guy. Maybe, you know, Julie would have been nicer and like, I don't want to say strung them along, but kind of played along with stuff a little bit more. But I think the whole idea of (laughs) Celine taking down his pants in public and telling him to go jack off in the rose bushes. (laughs) I think that was a good way to kind of say your, your presence really isn't required here anymore,
3: buddy. Actually, Mike, the exact line is masturbate into the daisies like a Gregorian. Nice. That was was actually
0: Julie though. uh,
4: Yeah. Yeah, because we get kind of a repeat of that line later on. You know? I, I
3: took that down when I was watching, and I was like, "This might be the best line I've ever heard in a film."
4: Because <laughs> is that now your comeback line? Why
3: don't you go masturbate the daisies like a Gregorian? <laughs> I think someone was disturbing me like, "What is he even? What are you talking about? <laughs> what are you even saying?" Getting upset about there not being like explicit lesbian overtones to the film and like not being okay that people aren't going to like mention it and acknowledge it. I I don't understand being upset about that because you guys are right. They're not like making out. It's not like that clip that you found, Mike, about Celine and Julie. I mean, it's not that. Yeah. And that to me, I think is, I think that's just indicative of a film like this, right? There's a lot of interpretations and if you've ever taken a film studies course in college, you know that people will pull any and every interpretation or theory about a film you know, that they can. I I think, you know, hey, two women live together, they must be gay or lesbians or lovers. I don't think it matters in the scope of the film. Could they be? Sure. Does it matter? No. Does it affect my enjoyment of the film or the way I interpret some of the more kind of important scenes of the film? If they were straight versus gay? No. I didn't actually even interpret the scene with her cousin uh, as her getting rid of him as a possible suitor because she was trying to protect her territory, her turf. I didn't even, I didn't even see it like that. But now that you say it, well, okay. I mean, maybe I'm just throwing that. No, but out I mean, I like, could see someone making that case, and therefore then being right. like, oh, well, see, she did that, so she must be interested in her. It's like, nah, you're just now, you're just kind of
4: grasping at straws. The only other thing I can think of is this film coming out in 1974 and critics seeing it. Uh, I imagine that this is an American or a Canadian critic seeing it in 75, 76, something like that. It, it's still a pretty big hot button topic. I mean, in 2016, we wouldn't necessarily bat an eye where it's just like, okay, yeah. So what if they are lovers, but we don't really care. But in you know, 75, 76, I imagine people were much more like, hey, this is what's going on in here, and you need to realize this, the personal is the political, and da-da-da-da-da. And so in that's absolutely fine, because things weren't necessarily being talked about, and things weren't being accepted. So, you know, I, I guess I can see this as maybe being a reading that was necessarily as a product of the time. But seeing it in 2010s, I wasn't necessarily reading things that way. And it sounds like none of us really
0: were. No. Well, it's like with the scene with the suitor, I mean, that just kind of like worked out later on where you have Julie basically kind of, she's not even really full on impersonating Celine, but basically takes over her, her act at the club and she's auditioning for all these agents and such. And that's one of my favorite scenes in the film. It's such a brilliant, just vaudeville from hell kind of, (laughs) 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 <laughs> <laughs> kind of uh, kind of approach to it and just you know, and and basically I mean almost sort of the equivalent of like well this is something you pin part of your life to and I'm going to come in and completely just make total scatter you know, just scatter it to pieces so I just I, don't, I guess with the whole suitor thing I wasn't really seeing it as a cuckold thing either it just, to me it just seemed like well this is the kind of universe where this will happen <laughs> you know sure it's just it, anything is possible and uh You know, people can have wonderful insults about masturbating into flowers, you know, twice in a film.
4: Yeah, I have to say, Celine's got some of the more juicy scenes, it seems like. Like, the whole idea of uh, after she does her act as her in the Magic Club, and that whole scene that takes place afterwards in the dressing room, which goes on for a little bit, but it, it there's... Some interesting things happening there. It's nice to see her relationship with some other people and everything. And then we also get her among some friends uh, in an earlier conversation. I think that's right around the time that we first see Julie after she's gone to the house and has come by in a taxi and is really disheveled. Which some people read as her being ravished while she's in the house and coming out looking like she's had just had sex. Again, not necessarily an interpretation that I had of the film, but okay, you know, every everybody's got a valid opinion, I guess. But you know, I was just like, Oh, okay, yeah, I wouldn't have necessarily read it that way. But yeah, those scenes are, are interesting to see how Celine interacts with other people because most of the time it is more of a one on one relationship between Celine and Julie. And we don't get a whole lot of Julie with other people, except for that tarot scene that you're talking about, where she's talking with one of her coworkers. But for the most part, we just see her with celine and i suppose that the other part is that whole idea of that woman that i was talking about the the woman who might have been her her former nanny i mean what was the relationship you guys saw with that woman who uh offers her tea immediately and gives her tea in that huge teacup so i was just like is this supposed to be like kind of this child thing because the teacup looked absolutely gigantic in her hands
0: you know, I didn't actually initially question the size of the teacup, but they're definitely I I thought that was so strange where she's like, Oh, your room's exactly how it you know, you left it and it even has your dolls because dolls are in all over this movie. I mean, you have like dolls I mean, from the beginning or near the beginning when you have Celine taking a shower. And Julie's kind of going through like opening little boxes and pulling out toys and dolls, and uh, and you're like, that's odd because I mean, you know, these are grown women. Why are we have dolls? And then and then like was it Celine going through Julie's trunk while she's out at the house for the first visit and pulling out a baby doll that she calls Nestor, which you know, which mm-hmm. you know, um, like she knows who these dolls are, like you know, it's which is sort of strange. And then of course, you know, there's a doll that comes up during the house segments. So I thought that was really strange. With her, was it? Was she called like her her former nanny, like pou- poupe? Like
4: <laughs> yes, the
0: doll. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't know. I thought that was I thought that was sweet, and it seemed like you know Julie just immediately kind of reverted to being a kid with this woman, which I don't think is too unusual. You know, if if you haven't seen somebody since you were a kid and that was your dynamic with them, I guess. I thought that was interesting. What, what did you think, Chris?
3: You know, you mentioned when she she kind of starts reinteracting with this the nanny she kind of reverts back to her childlike nature of herself and i think that that is something that comes up a lot in the film and that's one of the one of the themes that i got of the film is this kind of the recapturing of one's childlike wonderment in the world and the whimsy i mean you mentioned you've already mentioned that the kind of the whimsy of what it's like to be a child there are people like that that I interact with where it's like you know it's like flip a switch and you just kind of back into this mindset that you're not in anymore you know people I know from high school certain family members and I think that that's something that is really an admirable trait about this movie is that it tries to one of the themes that I got, and I know we're, we're not even near anywhere close to me talking about the themes of the movie because they're I mean, they're all over the place. <laughs> but I think that w- one of the themes of the movie is kind of embracing the world around you and maybe seeing it as not as a child, but kind of seeing more of the whimsy in the world and not just being serious and an adult and focused on the serious all the time. I was a child, spake as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child, but when I became a man, I put away childish things. So that whole scene just kind of reinforced that theme for me.
0: That's a beautiful point, especially because, you know, the thing that really struck me is it's almost like when you are a kid and it seems like anything, absolutely anything is possible. I mean, right down, because like the magic that's used in this film, I mean, people in real life do use tarot, but I mean, you know, at one point Julie's talking about like the spell where you're like, Using baby dinosaur eyes, and I'm no I'm no master of the occult by any means, but like I've read some things, and I've you know I've known people you know who definitely were, and I have never in my life heard of anything, any incantation or spell using baby dinosaur eyes. They're kind of hard to find, as you can imagine, and and, and the, the equivalent of using that are like these little cute kind of stickers, little like reptile eye stickers and this is part of their like spell work and but it's the thing when you're a kid it's like yeah you can just make up anything and it just seems completely viable and that's kind of like there's there's an excitement to that that we kind of lose as we as we get older where it's like there's not really magic anymore you know because we're adults and so this film definitely kind of brings back that magic with these two two young adult ladies
3: I don't know, that's kind of weird, Mike. You and I were doing that baby dinosaur uh, thing earlier on the culture cast where we were casting those baby dinosaur spells.
4: Well, yeah, the, but to Heather's point, those were very difficult to find. <laughs> Apparently
0: you guys are holding out on me.
3: But... Yeah, we're holding out on those baby dinosaur eyes. <laughs> it, that The childlike sense of wonderment that the two actresses who play Selene and Julie, it's so natural. That's one of the things that I have to applaud about this movie is that the interaction... And the way that they kind of inhabit the space of the film, it feels natural. It doesn't feel put upon. It doesn't feel fake to me.
4: Yeah, neither of them feel like... What, what's that trope that that people have come up with? The magical pixie girl oh, kind of thing?
0: the manic pixie girl, yeah.
4: Neither one of them seem to be like that. And they could have been played that way and i'm so glad that they weren't
0: no no the two the two actresses i just cannot stress up how great they are in this film you know to carry three hours that's no that's no easy feat because i mean we're with them pretty much almost the entire journey and um and they're just they're a delight a delight to be around and um just yeah, I mean the whole the whole cast in this film's great, and um we'll get to I know we'll get to this point later, but I have to say, did either one of you were you shocked that the man playing Olivier in the house segment was Barbie Schroeder?
4: I had read that he was in this a long time ago, so I wasn't that shocked when he showed up. But yeah, I was just like, oh. Okay, so uh, I, I know that guy. <laughs> like,
0: I did not. For some reason, that like went over my head. I kept thinking, God, that guy looks so familiar. And then when I got to watch it, I was like, oh my God, holy shit, it's Barbe Schroeder. That's amazing. You know What a great director. But yeah, I mean, yeah, the, the cast in this is fantastic.
4: You know, as you guys are talking about this kind of childlike sense of wonder thing, I was thinking of that in connection with the way that we are definitely being talked to about audiences and participation and just this whole thing. I mean, because we we have literal audiences in here where we have, you know, the guys at the cabaret or other people at the cabaret who are watching the, the two magic acts. And then we actually have Selena uh, and Julie as being this audience to what's going in, on in the house. And one of the things that... I think that the film is kind of playing with this this whole thing. Like, I don't know if you guys were like me when you were little kids, but when you're watching a movie and you've watched the movie, you know, 1500 times or whatever, maybe a few less than that, say 10. And you think if you wish really hard or if you, you know, there's a chance that things may not play out the same way that they always do. You know, if you watch this thing and you think, oh gosh, if only that particular thing hadn't happened like only if that you know that noise hadn't alerted those guys that they were here you know this whole thing would have gone differently and you imagine these different scenarios and stuff and to me that's kind of what Celine and Julie end up getting to do is they end up getting to change how the movie plays and i don't know but that that's something that came to mind while i was watching this is just the whole idea of seeing those movies when i was younger and i might not I might be the only one. I might not be the only one who wanted to change how certain things would play in the film.
0: When I, you know, when I remember being a kid and I wanted to be, I wanted to go into filmmaking originally. And I mean, that's what I would do. That was the genesis. You know, when I was a little girl, I would see films and I'm like, oh, that was good, but it could have been better. And so in my head, I would imagine, like, how would I improve it? Or, or even better yet, you know, when you. Like this obviously dates probably all of us, but you know, when you're at the video store and you're little and you see all these cover arts for films, you can't rent and you're like, what, what, what would, what does that film look like? And sometimes it ends up being those things where you get to rent these films later on or get them. And you're like, Oh, you're disappointed. Cause it doesn't match what you envisioned as your, as a child, you know, <laughs> it doesn't match the movie in your head.
3: We wouldn't be here talking right now if we didn't love film. And didn't have a very deep connection for film. Except for maybe Mike. Mike hates everything. So, uh, <laughs> Mike hate everything.
1: Let's get Mikey. He hates everything.
3: That connection that I feel to film is because of the connections with characters that may or may not make it to the end of the film. But, yeah, you know, there's always been certain films or things that I'm like, man, I wish, you know, she could change that. Like, and, you know, they do get to do that. Selene and Julie are like, no, we're not going to stand for this shit. We want to save the little girl like that. That's what the whole latter half of the movie ends up being is why is this happening and who's doing it and how do we stop it? And they're, you know, they're changing the narrative and the fiction on their own. They're kind of bucking the establishment and and kind of doing their own thing. I mean, I'm assuming, you know, having read some of the again, some of the stuff that uh, involving this film I feel like that's like a pro-feminist thing. Fuck the male establishment. I'm going to do whatever I want. That's awesome. I mean, that's that's what this film feels like to me. Is like It's like a statement on the part of women as a whole. It's like, you know, you can do yourself and what you want, and you can change the narrative the way you want it, and you can change the world around you. Nothing's really stopping you.
4: See, that I can definitely get behind, and that I can kind of see because – Getting into the house a little bit, we've talked around the house quite a little bit. But when Celine or Julie go into this house, they get transported into a narrative. And it's a narrative that's kind of a bastardization of a couple Henry James tales. When they go in there, they basically play a role of a nurse who is there taking care of this family, taking care of this little girl. And there's a whole dynamic of this man who was married and he isn't allowed to remarry as long as his daughter is alive. So these two women are plotting to kill this daughter. So it's very, very melodramatic. And I am very clear on using that word melodrama because melodrama for a long time has been associated with women and with the women's picture quote unquote. So like those Douglas Cirque kind of weepies, those things were identified along genre lines as being a woman's picture. So here we have Celine and Julie kind of being thrust into this women's picture and the story plays out exactly the same way every single time. So if you're not a fan of seeing a narrative played out multiple times. It's not necessarily from the same angle every time. And you do get to see some slight variations, but I can see where this movie might drive some people crazy by once they get into the house, that narrative just plays again and again. And we kind of are getting peaks at it and not necessarily in the same order every single time, because as Celine or Julie leave the house or they're kind of thrust out of the house, they have a candy in their mouth. And when they take the candy and put it back in their mouth later on, they get to experience what has happened in the house. Again, perhaps not in order, especially when the candy is broken up into pieces, they get to see little flashes of things. And it seems like that kind of changes as we go along where it, at first it's one person who kind of gets zapped into the memory of the house and to tell the other person about it. And then as we go along, they both are experiencing this at the same time. And they are sitting on this trunk that we talked about before and looking at the camera. So they are they're basically mirroring us where they're the audience to this thing just as much as we're an audience to this thing. So, like I said, though, I can see where really if you don't like that approach to things, Selena Julie is not going to necessarily be the movie for you.
3: You're not used to seeing in a film the characters staring at the screen and talking what would be directly to what's going on in what they're seeing, but in you know in the way it's filmed, it looks like they're talking directly to you. Uh, it, it's not unsettling, but you don't see that very often. I mean, that's like a 10-minute scene, at least. It just kind of, for me, reinforced the kind of whimsy and carefree nature of the film. Uh, That was just kind of, you know, we're not going to do what, I mean, I haven't seen another film that does it to the extent that this film does. It wasn't shocking, but it was, it it felt fresh and unique and I really liked it and it was a really unique way to tell that part of the story as opposed to what they do later in the film where it's just them in the scene interacting.
4: Of course, the first thing that flashed through my mind is Nick Cage watching the snuff film in 8mm in the way that we never see the film, but we just see his reaction or kind of, uh, the scene in Hardcore.
0: <laughs> it's so dark, Mike. Turn it
5: off!
0: Turn i have to say, those weren't the films that came to mind for me, <laughs> but I respect it. Yeah, to me that was that did kind of freshen it up because at one point I, I was kind of curious on like, how many more times are we kind of go through are going to go through the rabbit hole with the house right. and um, but then like by the time you have like the you know, Selena, Julie commenting on it and laughing and giggling over certain parts and even commenting on some of the characters, you know, like there's, Oh, that blonde one, you know, referring to Camille. <laughs> it's just, I don't know. It was really, I thought it was hilarious. I really liked it. And then by the time they get to interact and they're actually both in the house together, trying to prevent the murder of this child, that was just completely bonkers. It was bananas. It <laughs> It was, And it was so great. I, I I almost didn't want that to end. Yeah, just because their, their reactions and just making a complete farce out of everything. I just, I loved it.
3: I mean, I'm assuming that that was going for the making a farce out of that, those scenes is also kind of them saying we're making a farce of film itself. I don't know. I'm just like reading way too, like movies like this, just like get me going when it comes to like reading into stuff. So stop me if I'm like, I promise I won't connect this film to the Negro League Baseball, okay? Like, I I won't do that. But, I mean, I just – sometimes I read too much into movies like this. I'm sorry.
4: Chris, you've listened to the show before. I don't think there's any such thing as reading too much into a film. I mean, we haven't talked about the apples. We haven't talked about the mirrors. We haven't talked about the cats. I mean, there's so many symbols just kind of laying around in this movie that this film is definitely open to many, many interpretations.
3: Yeah. I mean, for me, my kind of interpretation for the latter half of the film is really a subversion of the film, the way film is done and was done in the seventies. It's like completely subverting it, turning it on its head, poking fun at it i mean them talking to the screen and essentially watching a film somewhat a scene of films from the 70s and kind of being like oh this is this is nuts like this is over the top like these look at these characters they're just being completely unrealistic that's what that struck me as
4: why didn't necessarily see them as characters from the 70s i much more put them in like 40s or earlier kind of thing they almost seem like characters from one of those melodramas like especially with the way that they're dressed and the way that they act but you know i know what you mean as far as this is a film from the 70s so obviously we are looking at everything through a 70s lens even if it's being portrayed as something that might be older
0: and that's one of the things I think I loved about this film is that there's so much you could delve into with it. There's so much going on. And um, like one, one thing I really loved was the term Mandrake. Cause we keep, you know, there's like the repetition of like, you know, when Celine first stays over there, Julie grabs her a Mandrake, which I believe is basically Valium. I want to say it's like, that was a European term. I don't think they were called Mandrakes over here. I could be wrong. At least according to a documentary I saw on Hawkwind, Mandrakes were a big truck. <laughs> in the 70s but then you know you have the whole play on words which i know rivette was really big on with puns and wordplay where you know of course celine's magician name is mandrake core
4: and of course we have mandrake the magician who's from like kind of the i want to say originally started in like the 1920s 30s kind of thing and that kind of plays into to me at least irma vep and i think that the whole thing of them in those black outfits on the roller skates was kind of a, a throw to Irma Vep. And then somebody even wrote a great article about, the use of the fonts in the uh, title cards, which we haven't even talked about the title cards, and how the font from the title cards is a direct reference to the film Irma Vep, and I was just like, oh, well that's a really nice connection as well. Oh, that's
0: fantastic. Well, and again with the wordplay, because of course Irma Vep is an anagram for vampire, so, I, oh, I love it. I I actually, I'm ashamed to say that I missed the initial Irma Vep connection, but then as soon as, like, you had mentioned it, I was like, oh my god, you know, I was like, the light comes on. On. It's like, oh, that's brilliant. I love it.
4: I wish I spoke French at all because there's wordplay that's happening in the subtitles, and I'm curious what the real wordplay is because there's that whole thing about when it comes to the spell that they're casting to use the word clover instead of clever. And I don't know what the French equivalent of that is when they're when they're doing this, but I like how when they're in the house and they're under this spell and they've got the dinosaur eyes and they're able to interact with the characters that are in the 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 house play or whatever you want to call it they keep saying like, Oh, that's, that's very clover of you. And just all these clover references. And I'm just like, wow, I wonder what that is in the original French.
0: Oh, I know. I had, I had moments like that too. Cause sadly I did, I took two years of French uh, in high school, but that was not, that's obviously very rudimentary. And uh, so yeah, I was kind of at lost with a lot of, but uh, especially it's harder to translate things like puns into English because there's usually going to get I know like like studying like somebody like Serge Gainsbourg who was all about using puns and wordplay too much like Rivet you know there's you know translating it to English it's it's going to be a little tricky inevitably Yeah
4: even the title the whole Van Bateau um apparently is a kind of a uh, a reference to go boating is basically to tell someone like a shaggy dog story. And I was like, Oh, okay. Well, that makes sense. Especially because it's hilarious that the title of the movie is Celine and Julie go boating. And that takes place like one of the last scenes of the film is that they're in a literal boat, but otherwise it's very much more of that tall tale type of thing.
3: That's my, one of my favorite aspects of the film is the fact that it's a shaggy dog story. It's just like, and Oh, by the way, you know, nothing like really happens. Because at the end of the film, you know, you mentioned the go boating. That's the second to last scene of the film. And then it's this kind of Mobius loop where at the end of the film, Celine is watching Julie run past her as opposed to Julie watching Celine. And I can only assume that this is just going to happen in perpetuity until the end of time. But that's like, that's kind of the whole thing with you know that that coupling that with the shaggy dog story where there is no punchline it just keeps and in this case there's no punchline to the film there's no real climax it just starts all over again it's just and the film started over more or less
4: i love that title card that comes up that says most of the times it started like yeah. this
3: which you know they're caught in this infinite loop of this just kind of always happening and that reinforces the kind of the fairy tale whimsical aspect of the film is this is just always going to happen. You can't, you know, and it'll probably always happen this way. Like it said, most of the time.
4: Yeah. So there is room for change, you know, kind of going back to what you were saying as far as the ability to change the story and have these two female characters come in and make a farce of everything, which, yeah, that's probably my favorite part of the film, especially because that story is played so seriously, and we 've seen it played from all these different angles and and from different aspects and everything and then to see these two characters who are now in the story and interacting with the story, but they could say whatever they wanted, like they forget their own lines when it comes to it, and nobody notices because the other characters are always just going to say the exact same thing, so having Celine and Julie there. Just taking the piss out of everything is fantastic. And I love how when we get that final run through where Celine and Julie are the active participants rather than just being observers as part of it that whole idea of uh, the way that it's shot, how we have this like kind of really harsh spotlight on everything. The shadows are really very pronounced and it just feels again, like we're now we've moved everything onto a stage and there are parts where Celine and Julie kind of meet up and it feels like they're meeting up backstage and they're kind of rehearsing their, themselves and smoking and, you know, pumping themselves up to go back on stage and take up the next line of dialogue.
0: Especially because I don't know if you guys noticed this, but like in the last, in that whole scene, by the time we get to the section where Celine and Julie are interacting with them, it's like everybody in the house, except for them and the little girl, look, they look grayer. Like, they revenants, you know? <laughs> it, um, and that's kind of how I took the whole thing, because, I mean, the main section where we see most of the cats is all the cats around the, the house, around the chateau. And it just reminded me of, like, you know, you have, like, a creepy, like, a, a slightly creepy house in a neighborhood that's been abandoned, and that's where all the stray cats kind of are and hang out and repopulate.
4: Yeah, because we get a, some cats, like, at the very beginning, we've got a couple cats. And then I want to say that there's one at least a mention of one when they meet up at Julie's place. Uh, But yeah, for the most part, almost all those cats are hanging out by that house and they seem to be very pronounced. And then, I mean, the final shot of the film is a cat looking directly into the camera. And I mean, there've been people too. one of the interpretations is, is this all just a cat's dream? You know, it's like, okay, you know, you could, you, you could probably make a case for that.
3: God, it was just all a dream. And then Bob Newhart woke up at the end and was like, what?
4: At the very end of all those Mary Tyler Moore shows, it was just all that cat's dream.
0: I laughed so hard with that shot because I I, ter- I just interpreted it as like, because I don't know if it's because my cats also get the same look on their faces where they're just looking at you like, are you shitting me? Like, that's what that cat looked like. The cat was like, did you see that? Did you see all this? Like, it's judging the film. I don't think that's probably what Rufet meant with it. But to me, cats always kind of, I love cats. But I mean, they always have this sort of look on their face of just like being slightly offended by whatever we are doing as humans. So I just, I thought that was a really funny, I mean, what better way? to end that sequence and with a with a cat with the you know it's just it makes about as much sense as baby dinosaur eyes and clever clover yeah
3: that's my thing is i felt like the way they ended the film with the cat just sitting there kind of quizzically staring at the screen is like i feel like if it had been me and i had made a three-hour surrealist film i'd be like you know what There's not really like a way to end this so let's just subvert how climaxes in films work and just have a cat staring at the screen. If it doesn't work, people will interpret it as it working and they'll they'll kind of read into it, right? I mean, that was my kind of take on it. It's just, again, it's that subversion of what you're expecting from a film. Is is And there's a cat at the
4: end and that's it. One thing I wanted to run past you guys, when they're inside the house, there's a lot of knocking that's going on during that last bit of it. I kind of interpreted that as those earlier times where we saw Celine or Julie outside the house knocking on the doors. It almost feels like that was their knocks from earlier. Like the the stuff in the house always takes place in the same time frame. So if something happens outside the house, like a knock... We're going to hear it at the exact same time every time we run through this scenario inside the house. Did you guys read it as that at all, or am I, again, reading too much into this?
0: Actually, I love that interpretation. That is not, that's not what I was thinking while watching the film, because I kind of... You know, I sort of thought, is that like a stage cue? I didn't know quite what it was, to be honest, but I sort of almost thought maybe it was like a cue to be like, you know, okay, girls get in place, you know, like it is the theater. Um, But I, I love, I love the idea that it's actually like them from like two days before or yesterday doing, that's a major like time kind of fuckery. And that's sort of, that's awesome. And I I mean, honestly, the beautiful thing about this film, like you said, Mike, I mean, there's, I don't, there's no wrong way to ever really interpret film, I think in general. And especially with this one, because there's just eight different ways we could go with it. And um, they're all viable.
3: Okay. So here's my crazy interpretation. I saw that knocking at the end when the final kind of run through is happening. I saw it as the kind of the construct of this, fiction is kind of falling apart. I mean, they're destroying it. They're completely changing the narrative by saving Madeline the young the young child. They're completely destroying the construct of this entire film because they're changing it just because they want to. And I've, it was like, you know, it's kind of like uh it's kind of it's kind of creaking and groaning and kind of pulling itself apart because they're changing it so much. They literally change the entire aspect of what you're seeing for the last hour and a half of the film. But that's like you said, maybe I'm just reading
0: too much into it. I don't know. I like both of those. I don't know. That's I think they both they're both just as like, you know, likely as anything else. I mean, we're, we're dealing we're dealing with a magical world. So anything literally is possible, including including multiple interpretations. One thing I liked early on that I noticed was strange before you kind of find out more about the candy was like the color of the candy changes. And it makes sense by the time you unfurl the story more and more. But like from the you know, when you know Julie stumbles out, her candy is yellow. But then the next day when it's Celine, it's green. And I was like, What's going? And that was to me like a tip of like, okay, there's something what's going on, that sort of illusion. You know, there's just so many just brilliant little touches in this film. It's it's really so smart. Like, I just, I, I don't know. I love it. And um, I'm sure there's probably going to be 80 things I think of when we get done recording. But I'm going to be like, oh, zoinks. There's something beautifully and transcendently overwhelming about this film. And I mean that with complete love because I absolutely adored it.
4: Well, I hope there's a, a new piece of Mondo Heather in the works after this one.
0: It's quite possible. Oh, my God. It'll, it'll be madness. This one just floored me. I think it's it's been, I've seen some great films recently, but I don't think I have seen anything that just floored me with just how much was going on in a long time. You don't really, I don't think you see that too much in more modern films. I don't know if it's because attention spans. People, you know, even with indie films, I think a lot of times people are catered more to having a shorter attention span, too. So it was such a treat to kind of see something just play out on its le- uh, you know at its own leisure too, and, and just have it be so rewarding. I feel like it's been quite a, quite a while since I've seen anything uh, that it was even within the valley of this film.
3: This to me right now, talking about a film like this, I feel like I'm back in English class in high school. This is that kind of film for me. It it has just like there like there's so much going on. It's such it's such a rich and full film that. An hour and a half of us talking about it doesn't do 20 minutes of the film justice, especially not if you're talking about the last 20 half an hour of the film. There's so much going on that I I feel like that this is just one of those films that, you know, people will be watching it and interpreting it and talking about different aspects of it for a, for a long time. I mean, there already have been. The film's been out since, yeah, 74. So, you know, 40 years now and people are still talking about it and still interpreting it and still writing new things about it.
0: Actually, one thing I would love to know what both of you thought of this that I thought was kind of haunting about this film is that shot, you know, the titular, <laughs> the titular shot where slim and Julie are in deep boating with Madeline and all of a sudden it's like, they look across and, like, there are the three characters. There's Camille, um, Olivier, and Sophie. Very, like, posed and staring at them. And what did you guys think of that? I thought that was, like, a really cool choice. I thought it was very slightly ominous for being, like, for especially for being such a, a fun film as a whole, where, you know, even though, you know, we're at one point dealing with a plot that involves, like, a kid getting killed, you know, like, it's very breezy. It's a very breezy film. But I, I found that shot to be kind of haunting and, and so strange. And I would love to know what, like, either, like, Chris or Mike, your guys' interpretation of it.
4: I know that there is a lot of whimsy and a lot of fun to this film, but I was also sketched out a couple times especially this whole idea of them going to the house like when we first see the house and julie going in there and then coming out and the way that she is kind of disheveled and is just like you know what the hell just happened to me kind of thing there's a rich tradition of haunted house films and i suppose you could make an argument to say that this fits into a haunted house genre so i was a little sketched out watching this the first time and just like oh geez what's going to happen I mean until you get their subversion of the actions inside of it it was kind of a little scary for me uh, to, to see this the first time. For some reason, I kept being reminded of like House of Leaves," that whole idea of like the, the house being bigger on the inside, than it's actually on the outside, and just like some of those ideas of you know the space and time and those kind of things. And so when we see the three characters outside of the house, it is a little ominous, and it almost feels to me like, you stole Madeline from us and they're not, they're not going to do anything about it, but they now have no purpose. They can't necessarily act out that melodrama anymore. But that's just you know the thing that I thought when I saw it, because it, it is kind of disquieting to see those three outside of the house, because for the most part, well, for the entire thing, they've been kept inside of it.
3: I'm still trying to process that part of the film. Really, the the kind of the looks on their faces and you, you mentioned already Heather, the, that the, their, their faces are gone and like gray. They're painted like a strange color. And I, I couldn't really put my finger on like what, what the point of it was, I, you know, with kind of the way I interpreted it, you know, this kind of universe pulling itself apart, the, the narrative pulling itself apart. I guess it, it like, they're just, they kind of have no place in time anymore and they're just kind of stuck on this river floating down the river. And that's just kind of what they're doomed to do now from now on is they're just doomed to float down this river because the universe that they inhabited is, is gone. You know, they started turning gray in that scene. So that's just kind of going along with the way I interpreted the latter half of the film and this kind of Celine and Julie being these kind of, chaotic forces that change the universe it you know those three had to go somewhere and here they are going down this river completely frozen looking like statues or like statues more or less
0: it makes sense because i mean if you i don't know and now i feel like i'm putting <laughs> this is a great film for everybody to feel like we're putting too much thought into things but what unnerved me was like them staring at them because i mean during the whole like play section where both girls are in the house everybody's like a robot You know, it's just like everybody's playing out their roles like they're supposed to. And there's no acknowledgement that, hey, we've got, you know, the maid isn't remembering her lines, you know, (laughs) or she's saying something out of order. You know, it's and they're putting like, you know, crowns on them while they're dancing and nobody notices and, you know, completely kind of, you know, just making a mockery of it. And there's no acknowledgement of their existence or any of this, you know, from the three I guess, ghosts, you know, the three revenants until like that scene in the creek where they're staring at them, but not moving. Like you said, Chris, like, like statues. That's so cool. And I mean, Mike, you, you're right. There are actually, I guess, cause it's just like, it's such a whirlwind of a film. I mean, if you know, there are elements in earlier on, if you, if you stop to think about them are kind of heavier that could kind of maybe get lost because yeah, everything else is so whimsical, even like with Julie's, uh, you know when she has kind of like a breakdown on stage trying to do the main mandra- the mandrake or act where she starts crying and it then is like accusing all the agents of being pimps and, <laughs> and all that and so but that's kind of the beauty of this film there is just so much to take in and there's you know it's not it's not just one thing it is many things in one film
3: And I don't think Rivette would have made this film or any of his films from what I've read about them. He wouldn't have made them if he didn't want people to interpret them. And I think that, you know, I think that this film really warrants the amount of (laughs) deep interpretation, however wrong, right? Like you said, I don't think there's a wrong interpretation for film for the most part.
4: Yeah, there are certain fan theories that I can't
3: hold oh, fan with, theories but... and interpretations, are, those are different, right?
4: Yeah, I, I would hope so. <laughs> you mean
3: all the Pixar movies aren't connected, Mike? What are you talking about? You just blew my mind. I, I have to go now. <laughs> I can't be on a podcast that doesn't support that, okay? All right, we're going to take a break and play a pair of interviews. The first is with film critic Jonathan Rosenbaum, author of many pieces about Rivette, including Rivette, Text and Interviews. The second is with Mary Wiles, the author of the contemporary director series book, Jacques Rivette. We'll play those right
1: after these messages. Wife Jessica, I have an idea.
0: What's that, husband Dustin? As
1: you know, we love movies.
0: Yes, dear, I know.
1: But we also love podcasts.
0: I'm aware, my love.
1: And then there's this other part of us that really loves movie commentary tracks. Get to the point, sweetheart. Well, if we made a movie podcast slash commentary track hybrid audio program, it would certainly be the best married couple movie podcast slash commentary track hybrid audio program on the internet, right?
0: Without doubt. But whatever would we call it?
1: We are the... Popcorn Poops is a weekly podcast hosted by married couple Dustin and Jessica Kramer. That's us! Each week we choose a movie based on a monthly theme, and then we sit down and record a syncable commentary track as we watch the movie.
0: But what makes Popcorn Poops special is that you don't have to sync up our podcast to enjoy the show, so you can listen to us like you would any other standalone podcast.
1: On our show, we like to talk about theory, story structure, genre conventions, and trivia, with a healthy dose of dick jokes.
0: Gotta have the dick jokes!
1: Subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and google play music
0: like us on facebook and follow us on twitter and instagram for frequent updates about the show including our weekly movie still identification game
1: visit us on the web at popcornpoops.com. we'll be waiting for you and not in a creepy way
0: okay kind of a creepy way yeah
2: okay fair warning it's not easy having a good time and it's not cheap either Every week, the Projection Booth brings you a new show, possibly even two, focusing on all genres of cinema. If you've sat through the seven-hour Conan episode, the six-hour Star Wars episode, or even the hour-long Superb Man episode... That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash projection booth. You can donate as little as a dollar a month. That's $12 a year, at least 50 great shows and two terrible ones. That's the price of two matinee tickets. Now, isn't the projection booth worth it? Once again, that's patreon.com slash projection booth donate today it's the right thing to do
3: hey projection booth listeners i'm chris stashu a writer and i'm sean liang an actor and we are the hosts of the culture cast twice a week sean and i sit down and talk movies new and old often centered around monthly genres such as musicals, Oscar-winning films, or right now we are in the middle of Martial Arts Month. We also talked with people who were involved in the films themselves, like Jack Black, Doug Jones, and my favorite was Adam Green. (laughs) Our guests truly span the gamut of film. We also have weekly guest co-hosts, including the host of the podcast you're listening to now, Mike White. He uh, has joined us on some of our cinematic adventures and follies, including when we talked about the John Cusack Classic 2012. So, if you're looking to fill the time between Projection Booth podcasts with more film musings, then check out the Culture Cast. That's Culture with a K on any podcast apps, iTunes, or over at
5: cultureshop.com slash culturecast.
2: This is Adam Spiegelman, the host of my second favorite movie podcast called Proudly Resents at proudlyresents.com. And you are listening to my favorite, the number one, The Projection Booth. Mike put so much work into it. If you listen to my show, I put no work into it. Enjoy the rest of the show. You lucky son of a gun.
4: When was the first time that you saw a revet film, and what was it?
5: The very first revet film that I saw was Paris Belongs to Us, which I actually saw during what may have been the very last season of Cinema 16 in New York. I was a freshman at NYU, and signed up for Cinema 16. And the only two films that I actually got to in the, in, in, that, in that season were both very memorable, were Pickpocket by Bresson and Paris Belongs to Us, both of which I had read about in Sight and Sound. Am I remembering correctly that you actually worked with Bresson? I was an extra years afterwards in uh, Four Nights of a Dreamer, quite by chance. But I went to the Cinematheque one night and was asked, as I was leaving, I it was I was seeing uh, advice and consent actually at the Cinema Tech. and as I was leaving somebody said, Would you like to be an extra in a bresson film? And he was shooting a few blocks from there. So I went I said, Yeah, sure. And I went over, spent the rest of the evening as one of the extras. And then I they were shooting one more night after that. And so I, I kind of made friends with one of the assistants and turned up at the shooting you know the the last night, which was in, when they were shooting the Batra Mouche, You know the uh, the boat, that, that very memorable sequence in, in that film. If you've seen it, so I got, I was there with the last two nights I the shooting, and uh, wrote an article about it. One of the first ones I ever published for the Village Voice. Going back to uh, the Revet stuff, did you see Out One when it was when it played? Not the original time, no, I, even though I was in Paris at the time i wasn't enough in any kind of i didn't know many people and i didn't. and in, in fact the the of about one wasn 't in Paris, it was in La Havre, you know outside of Paris, in which people went there for the whole weekend to see, but i didn't know about it until afterwards, so I would have gone ahead had I known, but i hadn't known by the time it was screened i'd probably already seen. La Morfou, possibly La Religieuse, and was certainly a Rivette fan. Although La Religieuse has never been one of my favorites of his.
4: Yeah, it seems very out of step with what he was doing, or at least uh, what he would do later
5: on. Yeah, for him it, it wasn't. He didn't regard it that way, but at the same time, I think he was partly frustrated. And of course, it it became the fact that it wound up getting banned. Of course changed its whole profile in a lot of ways. It was, uh, you know, there were demonstrations all over France about its banning, and that was just before there were the demonstrations about La- Henri Langlois being fired from the cinema Cinematheque. So both of those kind of like political activist events were very much kind of pre-1968 type of things.
4: It yeah, must have been kind of a, a hotbed of political stuff really heating up at that time.
5: Yeah, no, it's true. And I I was actually, before I moved to Paris, I was there not in May 68, but in June 68. So I still got whips of pure gas, and there was a lot of stuff still going on when I was there that summer.
4: Can you tell me about the first time you saw Celine and Julie?
5: Yes, I got to see it the first several times as a work print, actually, because by that time I had become friends with Eduardo de Gregorio, the screenwriter. And, uh, who, you know, worked on, in fact, it was, it's the first film he worked with on, at least it got made with Revet. he'd worked on an earlier script with him, that didn't get filmed, I think called Phoenix, P H E N I X. So I got invited to that and I was so knocked out by it. I was really eager to see it again whenever, it, and you know, when I say work print, it was a lot of it was in black and white with only some scenes and shots and color. But I was still blown away by it. And a few other friends, you know, like me, went to, to see it lots of times. For, and each time it was screened, it was screened at this place called Club 13, which was almost like a kind of fancy schmancy, you know, screening facility that was run by uh, Claude louche for the industry, you know, where, uh, kind of an industry hangout. And each time it was screened, there were you know, famous people who turned up, new wave figures. I mean, you know, uh, Truffaut came, Romare came, Chabral came, Jean Moreau came, Maria Schneider came, you know, different screenings.
4: What was the reaction like to the film?
5: Well, I mean, of course, the other the others were friends. I think they were, they were. I think that was basically supportive. I didn't discuss it with these other people, but I, I discussed it with my own friends, and we were all very enthusiastic. I remember... One of the screenings also was attended by Richard Roud, who was, you know, working for the New York Film Festival. And although he liked it, he was a little more divided about it. He thought it was, it kind of bugged him, you know, all the giggling of the girls and everything. He thought it was a little bit too much, it kind of grated on him a bit, I think. But he still wound up showing it at the New York Film Festival.
4: Can you tell me a little bit more about uh, Eduardo de Gregario? He seems such, such a fascinating figure, and I don't think that enough people talk about him, especially with things like the Spider Stratagem and then Surreal Estate. I mean, these are fantastic films.
5: Well, he was from Argentina, was interested, in, of course, in becoming a filmmaker as well as a screenwriter, and did make several features finally, although it was a struggle for him. Yeah, he worked in Italy originally, uh, where he, he was uh, one of the, played a minor role in uh, actually Straubuyer's Autant. He was one of the actors in that was in The Spider Strategy. There was one other film that he worked on the script of that I've never seen. Uh, I can't even remember what it was called. He also became friends with this woman, Mary Lou Peralini. Now, she's an important figure in all of this because... Have you ever seen The Chronicle of a Summer? The Jean-Rouche and uh, also Chronicle de Denite? Do you know this film at all?
4: I've heard the title, but I haven't seen it yet.
5: Oh, okay. It's quite a major film, actually. It's a real following people in the early 60s, you know, sort of ordinary people. But one of the characters that follows is a is a, is a lonely Italian woman named Mary Lou, who's very lonely and who cries about her loneliness and everything. It doesn't say where she's working, but she was actually a secretary at Cahiers Cinema, because Jean Rouge hung out with those people. And then later on, you see her later where she's much happier because she has a boyfriend now. And you see her with a boyfriend, very discreetly. I mean, he's only glimpsed sort of like from behind and so on, and it's Rivette actually. Rivette even was married to her, I think briefly. She was uh, a writer and I think a photographer who lived in Italy and Eduardo became friends with her also at the time he, he got to know, I don't know if he got to know Rivette because of her or there might've been some, you know, one way of one leading to the other. He got to know Rivette. They worked on several projects I mean, I guess Rivette knew knew about him through also his work on spider strategy. And interestingly enough, there's a reference to Borges in the very first sequence of uh, Paris Belongs To Us. The book that the uh, heroine is carrying is the French translation of, I think, Other Inquisitions. And Rivette hadn't even read Borges at the time. He just sort of liked, liked the title and decided to use it. I think later became a fan, you know. But anyway, that's a funny kind of uh, intertextual connection. Eduardo, at that time, was wor- you know was working for Rivette and went on to work to work on several other films of his: mm-hmm. Duel, Morois, and Merry Go Round. Also, the film that was kind of discontinued when Rivette had a nervous breakdown, called Marie and Juliet, which was li- with Leslie Caron and Albert Finney, which was going to be the third in this quartet of films that he was making one after the other. By that time, you know, when he was making Duel and Noir, I got to watch part of the shooting of both of those films. Duel in Paris and uh, Noir in Brittany in a uh, medieval fortress, actually, that was uh, that they were filming at. I made a special trip because I was, by that time, I was living in London, but they allowed me to come and, you know, to write an article for Sight and Sound about, you know, about the shooting of both those films, which I did with a couple of other friends who were also Revet fans and friends of eduardo i mean eduardo was gay and his lover michael uh, was american michael graham worked on that article gilbert adair an english writer who we knew in paris also worked on it just like uh, gilbert and another part of the same group our social circle a woman an american woman named lauren Sadowsky, who later worked with leo Carax, gilbert lauren and i interviewed rivette in my apartment you know during the same period about both Celine and Julie and Out One, because they were, they both played together at the New York Film Festival. The Out One Spectre. I mean,
4: when was the first time that you met Rivette, and what was that like?
5: He was a familiar figure at screenings at the Cinematheque because he he turned up at movies more than any other, you know, like French director. He was there all the time. In terms of actually meeting him, it it might have been when it, when we interviewed him when he came to my apartment for that, at least that's the time I remember. There might have been. We might have, got, you know, met met him with Eduardo for a drink or something before that. I can't remember really, but uh, or you know, and maybe and maybe I must have met him at the screenings of Selene and Julie* too.
4: When I think of Jacques Rivette, I think of your writing about his work, almost being intertwined. When did you decide to write uh, Rivette texts and interviews?
5: Well, that was when I was in London. It was the first thing I did before I left that job. I was working for the British Film Institute on two of their magazines, Monthly Film Bulletin, which doesn't exist anymore, and Sight and Sound. And then I got hired by Manny Farmer to kind of replace him for two quarters in San Diego, and so that's when I moved back to the States. But before I left, the last thing I was working on was this book. And so it was pretty much finished by the time I left. But So in a way, it became an extension of all my other We've at related activities because I was instrumental in getting it's, well, I was I helped get Duell into the Edinburgh Film Festival, and I was instrumental in getting uh, Norwa have its world premiere at the National Film Theatre in London. And that's when I spent the most amount of time with Rebet. I spent almost the entire day with him walking around London. And my French has never been that great, so in his English was equally non-existent so we had you know some difficulties in communicating we 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 managed one way or another and there were times after that you know when i at festivals and so on when i when i got to spend some time with
4: him that was a really rich time for his career i mean he had, it had taken a while between the nun and and out one to come. Well, I forgot the Morfu in there, but he seemed to take his time between projects. But during that period, it seemed like he was as much as Rivette can crank out films. He seemed to be putting out a lot of films.
5: You know, he wasn't a he wasn't a hustler, and he was he got to make Selene and Julie thanks largely to what's his name, uh, the guy who plays the guy in the, Inside the House and uh, Oh uh, Schroeder and Barbe, yeah, Barbe Schroeder, yeah who produced uh, Celine and Julie. One of the reasons why they were screening it so many times, by the way, is that he had signed a contract saying he would not make a film longer than two hours. But in fact, it was felt that it was better at three and a half hours than it was two hours. And so one of the reasons for all these screenings was to basically try to convince Barbet and other people that it was you know, better that way. So. That was the really the reason for the screening, and we were partly the cheering section, you know, who helped sort of like say, yeah, no, no, it shouldn't be cut, it should, it's great the way it is. Did you see a shorter version of it? No, he never had to cut a shorter version, which he did have to do with Lamar Fu, although I don't know if he did it, but somebody did. Maybe he refused to edit a shorter version, or maybe he did. I never saw the shorter version. They released both at the same time. I know, and that was before I moved to Paris. Of La Mere and the longer, ver- the full hour version did better at the box office, so that helped him too. The two hour version sort of disappeared because it was, ma- if it was made by him, it was made under duress, and because you know it was required. And that was by a different producer, Pierre Brumage, Bromberg- and then of course the the guy who who produced all the later films that Eduardo worked on. With Stefan was Stefan Chagajaf, who's quite an amazing producer. I got to spend some time with him a couple of years ago <clears throat> after not seeing him for years. But he produced so many of the films that were like impossible. You'd think that nobody could finance, like India's Song, one of Straubuye's films, uh, Bresson's The Devil Probably. I mean, it's quite an array of really interesting films that he produced.
4: How was his relationship with Hervet uh, when he was working with him?
5: Well, I, they got along. I mean, I think he was very much dedicated to giving Rivette what he needed and wanted and so far as he was able to. He was known as, I don't know to what extent that was true, as being a bit of a professional gambler, too. I mean, and, you know, he went, bank, he went bankrupt at least once or twice, too. And he was even in hiding for certain periods because of, you know, his creditors being after him. And so he had deposited, in fact, at a certain point, some of these prints that he had of Rivette Films. In the states, when when it was possible to see some of them, like Durrell and Noir, because of the prints that he deposited in the states with some friend.
4: Now I know that you've you've written more about Rivette. Uh, unfortunately, with his passing earlier in the year, when you look back on his career and his films, what are the ones that really stick out for you now, and what are the ones that you you tend to go back to the most?
5: The ones that I would cite would be Paris Belongs to Us, La Fu, both versions of Out One and Celine and Julie. Those are the ones. And then after that, maybe uh, La Pompano, North Bridge. But the ones after that, even though I like some of them somewhat, I don't like any of them nearly as much.
4: What is it about Celine and Juliet that holds up for you?
5: Well, I think the exuberance, particularly, but also the. I felt that, you see, that in a certain kind of way, Rivette. When he was, at the time he was making that film, was still very much, you could say, still a critic. And there's a real appreciation of all kinds of cinema within Celine and Julie. I mean, you know, one of the uh, major inspirations for the film was a re-release of uh, Artisan Models, you know, the Tashlin film. And there's even a passing reference to it in the dialogue. One of uh, Juliet Berto's speech when she's talking about Zuba uh, who's a, who's it was what when if you know uh, artists and models that Jerry Lewis dreams up these crazy plots in his sleep for comic books, and one of them is involving this character named Zuba. So, but in any case, so it was you know I think that kind of freeform invention is 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 partly what makes it as exciting as it is. Plus the fact that it's very it's scary too in certain ways to film. And I thought the that mixture of being um, you know, un, sort of uh, unbridled, but also creepy. I remember the first time when I saw the work print of Celine and Julie in the scene inside the house when Boulogne is bleeding, and you suddenly see from color that her, she's bleeding blue. <laughs> you know, that, 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 there was something so creepy and scary about that. I, I nearly leapt out of my seat. When did you finally see all About 1? I saw it at the Rotterdam Film Festival. When uh, the guy who's the director of the festival made it a special mission to show it for, you know, for the first time as a finished print. And he died before the festival of he a heart attack, I think. He few balls. So it was like his last legacy, you know, the, the screening of this. And what was incredible was I thought this great opportunity that all these people were going to show up for it. There were only three or four other people who came. And, you know, when I go to other people and say, you've got to see this, this is so amazing. And they said, oh, I've seen it already. And they said, no, no, you've seen out on Spectre, which is a different, really very different. I couldn't convince people to come. And they were showing it over several days. In fact, as the, the reels arrived, because it was being finished up in the lab. So it was it was really like a serial over about three days. And, in fact, there was one point where they lost are they had trouble getting the sound? So there was one part stretch in near the end, which was about 40 minutes without sound. But I stuck through all of it. And it was quite, you know, for the few of us who did, it was, it was quite an amazing experience. But it also really upset me that so few people were interested in. And I can remember thinking that if they'd screened, you know, the long version of Greed, the same thing might happen, you know. Nobody would turn up for it. But, of course, it's a, it's so much a matter of fashion because, you know, years later, when they screened it at the Museum of the Moving Image in New York, and then they, Dennis Lim did something in the New York Times about it, they sold out. And, in fact, they, they had, they'd had to turn away so many people, they rescheduled it a few months later and showed the whole thing again. So it just shows you how, how much fashion determines these things. It just wasn't, at the time... You know, for first screen, it just wasn't fashionable. <laughs> and then it became fashionable. What are you working on these days? Oh, lots of different things. Uh, I've been writing quite a lot this year. I'm working on uh, actually different Wells-related things. I've just done essays for upcoming Blu-ray releases of both Immortal Story and Macbeth. And I've also, there's a project that's it's just a proposal stage of doing some digital publishing of a lot of scripts by Wells drawn from the uh, actually the largest collection of Wells papers in the world now, which is at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. I was just there last week uh, trying to set up with another person working on this project. But we still have a ways to go, but that's something we hope to do. And I've been writing about other things. I wrote a piece about uh, James O. Brooks for a collection on genre. I've been writing about uh, Mark Rappaport for this French magazine. And other things, too. I mean, it's it's been a very busy time, as I've indicated, a very busy time for me. And in fact, just right now, as you as uh, what I was working on when you called, which I'll finish later, is just something from my website about a couple of um, DVD box sets, which I didn't find room to put in my last column that I want to write about. One of uh, Marcel Hanoon's four features based on the seasons and another devoted to... Three early features by Ho Shao Shin that came out in Brussels in a be- beautiful edition uh, of these early romantic comedies that he made when he was still, you know, like just kind of a commercial director. Where can people keep up with you? Through my website, JonathanRosenbaum.net. I, I post two at least two things a day on it, and it has an archive of practically everything I've, almost most of the things I've written, including everything I ever wrote for the reader, everything I ever wrote for Sight and Sound, Film Comment and even new pieces I do I publish there eventually when I can you know when I when I get clearance for them so yeah that and in fact that even gives you oh, there was a rundown of all the different things I'm going to be doing and so on in different pages on that website one other thing I might want to add I don't know if anything is ever going to happen to it but years ago in Paris Jacques Renault filmed and uh, uh me interviewing Eduardo D'Argorio for what was supposed to be a DVD release of Celine and Julie and it never happened I mean New Yorker still has the elements and they think they might have done some other interviews for it and stuff but for whatever reason it never part of the problem was that Dan Talbot never liked the film so he was he, he was always you know when it opened and it was that's biggest commercial success then all around the world except for and except for in the States because Dan Talbot only bought it the rights to it when it was sold to him for practically nothing. The ads for it, which were very bad ads, were almost like postage stamp size. so I mean, it was like he really wasn't he was kind of like more interested in burying it than opening it at the time. so which is too bad because I think it could have done better back then if it had been handled properly. but uh...
6: my name is Mary Wiles and I am a senior lecturer at the University of Canterbury in cinema studies. So I teach introductory and postgraduate film courses and supervise film postgraduate students here in New Zealand. How did you get interested in teaching film? I guess that's a long and imbricated tale, but I really started off um, on an undergraduate abroad program um, where I studied in Paris. And I think that's what really triggered my initial interest in film. Of course, like many of my own students, I had a, a kind of amateurist interest in film all the way through from my you know early childhood days mm. in a small town until the time I went to Paris, which really stimulated my idea that film was something other than entertainment. And so from there, I decided to apply to the University of Iowa um, in an MA program in film. At the time, it was a very vibrant place. And like some people know who are in academia, it was also a place where French film was given a, a high priority status in the curriculum. Dudley Andrew was the chair of the film department at the time. Um, we had visitors from France like Jacques Aumont. Of course, many people know that he was one of the first people to write about Jacques Rivette during his Callie years. And We had David Bordwell as a visitor. Um, we had Alan Williams teaching courses on documentary film. And, of course, many people know that Alan um, Williams wrote the very seminal book on the history of French film. So I was very fortunate to be at Iowa during a time when it was, many people say, it was a flowering postgraduate program. And from there, I went to Paris again. And I stayed for three and a half years where I, you know, I studied film at uh, Sancier de Paris 3. It was a very vibrant place then, and I'm sure it still is now. And I met a lot of people, some of whom helped me with the rivette book, like um, Michel Marie, um, who was a professor at Sancier at the time. And I, I believe Finally, I got a PhD at the University of Florida under the supervision of Professor Maureen Turum. Many people know Maureen, um, who wrote a very interesting book on flashbacks on film, and who's always been involved with experimental film um, as both as a critic and as a a theoretician as well. And. of course, her fabulous book on Oshima as well. So I was very privileged to be able to kind of grow up in academic film um, under the tutelage and under the supervision of highly capable uh, people. That, I think, triggered my longstanding interest, um, not only in French film, but specifically Jacques Rivette.
4: What was it about the French film that really kind of lit this fire under you?
6: Oh, I think as a young student, I think it, it represented to me a whole different world, a world that I was not necessarily um, familiar with. I didn't grow up watching French films, certainly. I was always interested in art, and I knew a little bit about French um, art and painting. Um, But it was really, I think, visiting Paris for the first time that represented to me not only a a different art form, but a a whole different world, a whole whole different community. So maybe it was the novelty of that world and the world that it represented and a a different way of looking at, at things as well. That I think French film offers more than maybe other, I don't know, I won't say other national cinemas, but certainly more than American film. So it was a different perspective, a different way of looking at the world, that this is what French film offered to me, and perhaps Jacques Rivette's films more than even other films in in French um, culture, and history.
4: What was your first experience with a Rivette film?
6: I believe my first experience was when I was first in Paris, when I was able to see Celine and Julie go boating. I think that was really um, my introduction to the Revet Oeuvre. I believe that the next film that I saw was uh, Perrine nous I saw that as a student, I believe, at the University of Iowa, which, of course, was highly geared towards the French New Wave with Dudley um, having written uh, the Bazin book. I was introduced first as a very young student in Paris, to that film, Celine and Julie voting. And it was, I guess, in many ways, an introduction to the whole world of French film. I remember other films that I saw that impressed me at the time. Um, I saw Alain Renee's Providence, which had just been released. So it was in that late 70s or mid to late 70s moment, when I was um, a young student, some of the ideas and some of the ways, I mean, it was just, I guess, a fabulous experience for me to see these very unusual and and different kinds of films, films that I would not have normally seen to experience them in such a climate abroad, I would say.
4: Now, when people think of the French New Wave, they generally think of Godard and Truffaut and sometimes Chabrol. But where does Rivette fit into the kind of scheme of things when it comes to the French New Wave?
6: In that very key interview that he does that he provides in Le Veilleur. I don't know if you're familiar with that particular interview. In French, uh, Le Veilleur means the watchman. And in that particular very key interview, I think it's Serge Danet uh, who asks him, he asks Rivette, well, where, where do you figure with all the other guys, your colleagues, at and Rivette says that he was possibly um, considered as the Saint-Juste, um, of uh, <laughs> of the reign of terror, uh, the the angel of death as as a critic, as a young critic in the fifties, and of course he had the reputation of being harsher, more severe as a critic than anybody else at Cahiers. And then Donne follows up and he says, "Well, was Truffaut then Robespierre?" And he said, "Yes, <laughs> he was the I guess the firebrand." And um, then I think he says in a, in a very wry, tongue-in-cheek moment, um, and who was Godard? And he says, I think Godard was more like Camille Desmoulins, who was a, the journalist and the revolutionary by-, by essay. So he was being a little wry and a bit naughty when he says that. But it kind of gives you, in terms of um, Ravette's own self-perception, where he might have sat. Um, as, and and it's, it's interesting that he sees himself as perhaps being the most draconian of the critics at the when you meet Rivette personally, you never get the sense that he has that sense of, of being very severe and very harsh. Um, as a person, he's very personable, very genuine. And so, it's funny that as a critic, he's he's almost the opposite of the way that he presents himself personally as, as a person. I don't know, of course, Rivette personally, but I did have a very brief, um, as you know, interview with him at the Café de la Bastille at his invitation. Of course, I um, had set up that interview with him. And so, I've only met Rebecca twice, and I've only spoken with him briefly, but you do get a sense, even from brief talks with him, of the kind of gracious and generous person that he is. So it's interesting that he situates himself in that way, or, he, or that he was situated that way by the other Cahiers critics. Now, in terms of, of the new wave, the new wave was branded, in many ways, as a movement that represented freedom and spontaneity in many, and throwing away theatrical mise-en-scene. It was Truffaut, of course, who launched, in many ways, the New Wave with his um, you know, crucial article, A Certain Tendency in French Cinema. And from thereafter, Truffaut's, how can I say it, he, he sort of launched the New Wave with that kind of idea in mind. And of course, his film was the first to, to reach not only French audiences, but international audiences. And it was that, particular film um, that became a kind of the hallmark or the, the iconic emblem of what the new wave represented. That kind of freedom and spontaneity perhaps wasn't embraced in the same way by Revest's well, first film, Paris Nous which, of course, did not get the, the generous reception that uh, Truffaut's first film, or Godard's, of course, Abu uh, de Souffle, received. So in, in certain respects, Rivette's interests, uh, long-term interests in theater, in theatricality, reflexivity, the kind of approach that he embraced would, would not be identified or identifiable um, as as representing the new wave. So in some respects, he was sort of cast to the side. But I don't think that was necessarily a bad thing for Rivette. In, in one of his early films, in, in that early film, his first new wave film, Paris the young, frustrated director Girard uh, says um, at one point in one of his um, key dialogue um, uh, moments, um, when he's explaining to Anne Goupy, the young student, what his artistic project of putting on a play of Pericles, what that would mean to him. And he said, tout se passe sur le plan, which means everything happens on another wavelength. He would. So in many ways, um, that particular phrase that Gerard uses to explain his artistic life to Anne could be used to to describe Rivette's own artistic place with respect to the new wave. And I think it's been commented on even by um, his um, um, co-screenwriter that his films take part or pass on to the side, to one side, a côté, everything happens on another wavelength to the, to one side. He's not at the center, but he's to one side. And also, there's a lot to be said about um, his, his, his part in actually helping to found um, to the new wave. And as you probably have heard, Mike, um, his first three silent films have recently been discovered in his apartment flat by his um, wife, um, Veronique. The three films, the three silent six millimeter films that, Au um, Quatre Le Quadrille, Le Divertissement, that were made between 1949 and 52. Have been sort of a missing link in the oeuvre. They've been they have been lost for well since he made the films, as far as I know, because nobody's seen them. I've never seen them. And for the first time, those films are going to be screened in a special screening later this month in Paris. Um, it's it's a private screening, of course, for uh, his colleagues, his closest friends. But perhaps perhaps after that, I'm hopeful that they'll be archived in the in the in the uh, Cinémathèque Française, and potentially, who knows, maybe one day. Um, they'll be out on a box set. I mean, there have been very interesting box sets released, as you know, recently. Some of his long-lost films that have never been available, subtitled, like the, um, the 70s uh, Tetralogy, have, have recently been released on DVD the, uh, in the Revette collection. So hopefully these films will be released and we'll be able to explore um, where he stood with respect to his young colleagues um, at, at the Cahiers de Cinema and their earliest efforts. In filmmaking, as you probably know, Le Quadrille was co-written with Godard. So at that early time, um, they were still collaborating on each other's projects. They were very much a part of each other's work, and it w- would be fascinating to see what part they played in those early years when really they were almost just teenagers. <laughs> you know, I mean, Godard was only twenty years old. And Rivette was much older. So yeah, that's what I'm thinking.
4: That's one thing to be a fan of of the films and one thing to study them. But you actually wrote the book about Rivette. So what kind of prompted you to finally say, this is going to be my area of study. This is the book I'm going to write.
6: Rivette's films um, hit on a lot of themes that I've always been interested in. As I said, as a young, very young student, I was interested in painting. I thought of myself as maybe going into drawing and painting. I love reading books and so some of these interdisciplinary areas that Rivette's films touch on, perhaps you might say that of, of the New Wave directors, it's Rivette who really branches out into different intertextual relationships with the other arts, painting, literature, music, dance. And so I am intuitively knew that to do a book on Rivette, I would have to explore, and I did have to explore, um, theater first and foremost, literature. I had to read the books that that some of the films were adapted from, Um, some of the tableau, the paintings that he explores in his work. Um, I had to read a little bit about art history. Music, uh, I had to study a little bit or read a little bit about Boulez and about the, the kind of music that Rivette was interested in at the time that he was working Dance, all of these kinds of arts, none of which, by the way, I consider myself an expert in. (laughs) I was really very much a dilettante, so I had to do a lot of research to write. It strikes me now, after the fact, that Rivette had a a kind of encyclopedic knowledge of these different art forms. It wasn't just everybody always says, "Well, Rivette is the ultimate cinephile," but it's true, of course, he was of all the of all the directors rivette um, time and time again it's pointed out he's the one that had the encyclopedic knowledge of film which he does but he also had an encyclopedic knowledge of all the other art forms i mean even talking to him briefly at a cafe it was true that he'd read all these plays he knew all these (laughs) musicians he he knew their work and he had a kind of he was a reservoir of knowledge um, about not only film but about all the art forms. So that was one area, I think, that attracted me to that. But there was also um, his interest in, in I, I believe, in. he provides a very, well, maybe of all the directors of the new wave, he's most devoted to representations of women in film, and perhaps you go so far as to say he is the one that provides the most articulate feminist discourse of any of the new wave directors. That's my personal opinion. Some people might argue with that, but I think um, that was certainly an element that attracted me. Um, His representations of women in the occult, women's voices, female friendship. And of course, um, it's true that when I began this in the mid-90s, um, nothing had been written about Rivette other than Jonathan Rosenbaum's excellent um, book, as we all know, that he published in uh, the mid 70s, Texts and Interviews, which is more a, a, a it's, it's an excellent resource. Let's put it that way. I couldn't have written the book, I don't think, without um, that kind of book having been published, which apparently he was able to do um, with uh, Rivette's uh, implicit permission, which was, you know, perfect. Um, it was perfect for me to have that as an excellent resource, and it was the founding text upon which I based my, um, my research on, on Rivette. But th- there had been very little else published in English. Of course, other writers in France um, were taking Rivette on and always had. Um, there was a multitude of articles um, published in French um, on Rivette. Um, various authors had taken, had written very poetically about him. But, and, of course, I had to speak and write French um, in order to do this. So I had a background, at least, that enabled me to do this, and many people um, would have balked. And perhaps I was a bit naive <laughs> when I began this, because I really didn't understand at the time um, the depth of, of work that and, and, and the length of time that I would have to spend to write this book. Um, and like many people, beginning a first book project, you're very energetic and ambitious, and you think, okay i'm going to take this on you know once you're committed to it that's what you need to do you don't really understand when you begin at least i didn't the depth and and the, the breadth of research I would have to do to to write even a short book, which, of course, the Contemporary Director Series imposes, but that was a good start for me in my career. So, yes, I'm I'm very grateful and happy um, that I was able to begin with Illinois Press. They were very understanding of the many (laughs) delays that they would have to encounter with me. So, yeah, thank you to, um, first and foremost, of course, Jim Naramore, who was um, the series editor at the time. And, of course, John Cantopano, who is the um, editor-in-chief at Illinois. So I owe them a great debt.
4: There's a little bit of irony when it comes to having to write a short book about a filmmaker who made such long films. I mean, of course, I'm thinking of Out One. But even when it comes to Celine and Julie, I mean, we're we're over the three-hour mark with this. Did that present any problems for him getting distribution or having his films even seen?
6: Ravette, of course, has been plagued all the way through with problems with distribution. I, I believe he was able to nuance um, <laughs> the discussion about Celine and Julie. Thankfully, it isn't. There is the long version, and it's the only version that we that we have. Of course, without one, as you probably know, that particular film was intended as an eight-part serial that was to have been broadcast on French television, but sadly, of course, it it was never broadcast um, in its original form on television. The the ORTF refused to purchase the film once it had been released, or once it had been finished, it was never released uh, at that time. So it was, of course, a problem for Riva. It had its singular screen projection uh, in La Havre um, at the time, and it was only, uh, as far as I understand, uh, poorly intended. It, w- it was only really available to, to a couple of hundred people who were happened to be able to travel <laughs> out of Paris um, on this odyssey to see the film. So, of course, it was a very exoteric um, moment in film history <laughs> when when it was actually projected. And of course, today, thankfully, we have it um, available in translation on several DVD box sets, um, most notably the most recent one, of course, um, in the Arrow collection that's been recently released and distributed on DVD. So today we have it. Um, but of course, when I began this project, I didn't have it uh, available. I thankfully had um, a friend at uh, au d'Aubontemps, Peritois, Michel-Marie, who enabled me to go into the storeroom. And with the assistant uh, who was there working at the time, um, we, were mani- we managed to make VHS dub copies from the copy that was held at the archive. So thankfully, thanks to Michel-Marie and his assistant, who gave me permission to take away uh, my own dubbed copies of the film. That's how I was able to complete the book and write about the film. So it was with the support and help of the staff at Pepitois that I was even able to see the film. Otherwise, I don't believe I would have been able to write about it because I would not have had access to the film. Now, everybody knows the saga, or most people know the saga, of course, about La Morfouille. That was, of course, the film is almost four hours. And there was a two-hour version that was um, released uh, at the same time. And apparently, it was at the behest of the Cosinar distributor uh, that that was imposed this this two-hour version it's been it was disowned by uh, rivette and i've never seen the two-hour version of the film apparently it was not a film that rivette um actually had sanctified or as or even acknowledged as being his film so i don't know exactly the the exact details about how that happened but of course it was one of those very unfortunate (laughs) situations and of course La Mouffe, again, in order to write about La Mouffe, I had to go to the British Film Institute to watch the film, a print of the film, an actual real to real print. In the archive. And that was the only way that I could see the film was to see an archive print. And the only archive that I was able to go to see that print was at the BFI. But however, the good news is, um, on, the, on a positive note, and I think I can make this announcement, there will be a copy of amor Hu that will be, become available on DVD. I can't give dates at this time, but that is the good news. That finally, that long lost film will become finally available to see.
4: Now, Selena and Julie is such a, a rich text. Where do you even start when you try to pull that film
6: apart? You might begin at the end because, of, as everyone knows, at the end of the film, you know, it, it, the beginning of the film, it circles back around um, so that the, the ending of the film is, is spiraling. To, to lead us on to yet another cycle where the roles are switched. And, of course, um, the, film, the film goes on endlessly. But that's possibly one way to begin, is to begin at the end. And, and in many ways, it's a good metaphor for the way that readers must encounter um, Rivette's works, because I, I'm not sure that you can enter a film in the same conventional way. Um, that you would enter any other film. I rewatched watched the film last night just to kind of prep myself in this interview today. And the film is very pleasurable experience. You just feel very at home in that world. And it is a world, as you say, it is a lengthy film. And you have to prepare yourself and take, you know, take your shoes off and, and get a coffee or whatever you have to drink and prepare yourself for an evening. And it's a very lovely film to encounter, it's not a difficult film, I don't find. Other films, for that, you might have more problems encountering, or at least some spectators would. But this is a film that lingers long and leisurely on the not important moments. And that's part of the way that I enjoy that film the scene where julie just stays in the park and really nothing happens at all and you you just linger with her and this is the scene before of course she goes back to her apartment and finds um Celine huddled at the doorstep fainting being wounded her knees cut up so but we, we stay with that scene for quite some while just to enjoy the foliage the leaves the trees to watch the cats going going in and out That's part, I think, of where you begin with such a film is just to it's not with story so much, although in many ways, many people would say that's Rivette's most intricately sculptured labyrinthine tale. Of course, there are two sets of storylines, the storyline where Celine and Julie meet each other and are co-conspirators and revel in their friendship and take on the interior narrative of the Phantom House which, as we all know, of course, was based on the Henry James, the the other house and his other um, occult short story romance of certain old clothes. But I don't think you need to know or have read those particular James stories to enjoy the interior narrative, if that's what you are intended to do. It's not a film that requires much on the part of the spectator. I don't think you need to have a, a, a repertoire of film history references either to understand or enjoy it. Although, for those who choose to do so, there are some very interesting, of course, intertextual homages. For instance, the tarot sequence in the library, some people say it could be an homage to um, Cleo from 5 to 7. Or um, the, the passageway between the Phantom House... And the exterior world um, recalls Orphée by Jean Cocteau. Uh, certainly, Cocteau was a crucial reference point for Rivette. he always says in every interview, including the one he did with me, um, he begins by saying Cocteau was the reason, um, of course, his diary of the shoot of, of La Belle et la Bête, The Beauty and the Beast, was the reason he began his career in filmmaking. So always think about one at least um, Cocteau reference in every Rivette film, or at least, if not a direct homage, then at least that kind of dreamy, otherworld, fairy tale quality you can find in Cocteau. Um, So for lovers of Cocteau, you'll have that. For people that love Varda, you have a little bit of that kind of perambulation through Paris that Cleo does. Very different films, of course, very different kinds of style. But nonetheless, I'm sure uh, Rivette, like many of the other New Wave um, directors, was very aware of um, her role. If not as a canonical member of the New Wave, then certainly as um, somebody who was um, part of that group of friends and that collaborated, certainly with Godard and with, with other members of the group. And there's also the love of early silent cinema, right from the beginning of the film, we have that tinkling music, the titles, of course, that pop onto to the frame. Recall that early silence so that Rivette was such an, a fan of and spent many, many days, especially in his early years at the Tech, watching the old classics. So Rivette had a love of that innocent quality, of the early silent classics, and I think that love of those of that period of film comes across. And some people have said, of course, that it's an homage to Foyad um, and Les Vampires, particularly the section when Celine and Julie roller skate <laughs> in their in their um, uh, Irma Vep costumes to the library to get a magic book. And it's interestingly enough on that on that very. The subject, um, I don't know if you've read, on Vyazemsky's trilogy about her life or her uh, relationship with Godard. It's only available, I believe, in French. But in one of them, um, I believe it's Un An Après, one year after, she does write about that particular sequence. She said that she met Rivette in the street when she was roller skating And she writes in the book that she hopes that that particular scene was a reference to her, a kind of wave, because she almost ran him over in the street. Apparently, she kind of ran into him. And she says, well, I hope that he remembers that. And maybe that scene is a kind of fond memory that he has of me, apparently, because they were all friends at the time, of course, that she's talking about, I guess, one year after, one year after May and. um, of course, her relationship with um, Jean-Luc at the time, I believe they were married at that point. So, so he, she remembers fondly um, that perhaps it was based on that particular encounter. Who knows? But yeah, uh, as, as well, as, of course, as an homage to um, Irma Vep and Les Vampires. From Foyad, so there, there are many um, kind of hi- historical film reference points in the film, but I don't think you necessarily need to know those film references um, to enjoy the film. There's also um, Alice in Wonderland. Uh, many people have compared the opening sequence to Alice um, um, meeting the um, the rabbit who is on his way somewhere and, and just being you know swept into this world of imagination um, and fantasy and dream all of those sorts of reference points. Even um, if you are familiar with Rear Window, um, some people have likened the film to a kind of Rivettian, a Hitchcockian version of Rear Window, where, of course, uh, Jimmy Stewart's looking across the um, courtyard at what's happening um, in the various rooms that he sees and is investigating a murder mystery. So you have to say that the girls like uh, Stewart, are investigating a crime. They're criminal investigators um, looking and and actually, like Grace Kelly, actually going into the house to see if they can save a child victim. There's so many sources of pleasure um, in the film, people that like old comic routines, um, Laurel and Hardy, Abbott and Costello, the Marx Brothers. I believe um, Brad Stevens just wrote an article uh, about Rivette's homage to the Marx Brothers in a recent issue of Sight and Sound. So there, there are many sources for people who are coming into the film not knowing film at all and are able to sit down and watch the film and enjoy the film, and for people who are well-versed in film history who are looking at the film and enjoying it on another level, on another level entirely. Uh, I think it appeals to all, all kinds of spectators, and not just women spectators either. It's, it's obviously a film that offers pleasure to women spectators in a variety of ways, perhaps maybe more than male spectators, obviously for ideological um, reasons, not only for the pleasure that we see in the film, but for the reinvention of the old melodramatic domestic narrative by these two women interlopers who intervene on this narrative and are able, To rewrite it in their own theatrical restaging of it. They aren't saved, they save and and change the narrative by rescuing the little girl um, and escaping with her. So, ideologically, um, aesthetically, there's much to be enjoyed about this film.
4: How was the film received when it came
6: out? Remember that Perry Nusapartien had not been the success that his other New Wave cohorts had enjoyed. Uh, Of course, La um in, in the mid-60s really put Rivette on the map in, in France. Um, it was a succès, a scandale, um, a tremendous amount of tension um, to that film and to Rivette because of, of course, the themes that it addressed. Even though it was a canonical literary classic, Denis Diderot, it was nonetheless addressing themes that in 1966 were uneasy themes to be made. At least that was the justification for banning the film. And of course, it was later uh, retrieved and shown because of the um, scandalous press it had received and the controversy with the Catholic Church. It really put Rivet on the map in a way that he hadn't been before. amour who then really was... Almost buried, um, even though it was released in a kind of, how can I say, modified form as a two hour film. Nobody saw it. It, it. it really didn't receive very popular. Um, it wasn't a film, even though critically, Kaye de Cinema wrote lengthy pieces on Amokfu. So it was viewed by the Kaye critics as possibly one of the, and still is, as one of the most important films because of its um, very experimental strategies that Rivette was able to enact. And so it was possibly, and still is one of the most important films in the over, it, was, it, was, it wasn't a film that had a, a huge international distribution it would, or huge success with the public and then of course there was that one that, that was almost completely unseen except by a couple of hundred people and so when celine and julie came along in, in 1974 um this was the film it was shown um not only in france but at the new york international film um, festival at the at the time it was released so it, and it, it was it was a film that really put Rivette. On the map internationally, um, it was embraced as just not only in France but a, but a, around the world, and it made him an international name in, in a way that he hadn't been prior to that. I, I, I must say, of course, then he, he he followed on with the tetralogy with which he had a great deal of difficulty ending uh, where, where he had a nervous collapse because he couldn't complete it so he had these great career highs followed by lows for whatever the artistic merit of the, the Parallel Live series is it certainly didn't help his um, career as a filmmaker Um it didn't give him a broad audience and that really yeah, it, it didn't really happen again until Bondi Kattwa uh, at the end of the, the, the next decade where he had another critical and popular success with that film
4: Mary, what are you working on these days
6: It's a good question. I'm writing an article right now on the intersection between Rivette, Jacques Rivette and Marguerite Duras India song in particular looking at Duel again. Duel was a film that I would wanted to write more about because again it's a film that I think has been overlooked, and I was thinking about a way to um, approach that film and I I've always been interested and intrigued and have loved um, Marguerite Duras, especially I've loved India's song. So that's my critical project at the moment. And I'm also editing a issue of Cine Files. Mike, do you know Cine Files at all? It's an online journal, and it runs, it's runs. it been running for a number of years now. I'm the editor of an issue on, um, on Jacques Rivette and marker. I think that'll be a real interesting project. We're we're going to be sending out official calls for paper soon. So for anybody out there that's interested in running on revet or marker, be looking out for that call because we'll be putting it out very shortly. The issue will be coming out next year. The dice.
4: we're back and we were talking about Celine and Julie go boating. As I was watching this film, I was definitely thinking about some other films. I know that a lot of people have made comparisons between Celine and Julie and Roseanne Arquette and Madonna in and Desperately Seeking Susan. I, I can see that. But what were some of the, the other films that you guys necessarily might have thought of while you were watching this one?
0: Two films that came to mind. And one of them, I think, makes sense. The other one is only really i mean if i was going to be honest objectively only makes really just small sense <laughs> but the first one was the discreet charm of the bourgeoisie
4: oh i can see that yeah yeah Manuel
0: film because it's particularly with the whole like the scene in that film where the, the dinner party's in front of an audience i can't imagine doing a double bill with this film because i can't imagine you know what would play 100 percent well with it but that one i think would be close i think there's definitely some elements that not just the surrealism but just the whole i mean you're right the constant audience whether it's literal right down to you know a comment on who we are you know we're the viewers we're the audience we're watching all of this play out the other one and it's only with the main drain core sequences this is just in my little fevered head here was the club scenes and killing of a chinese bookie and i don't i don't know if it's just because like how like her her magician act where there's sort of like this wink and a nod You know, the way Celine does it where she's kind of like doing these exaggerated like, you know, sexy faces and, you know, and it just seemed like a very like low rank cabaret kind of thing. And it sort of reminded me a little bit. But again, I'm going to I'm going to flat out say. There's no real connection between the two. It's just my head and just, you know, it's like you thinking of Nicolas Cage with snuff. I guess I could see desperately seeking Susan, but to me, not really, because that's more of a literal identity switch. There's no real, I never thought of that film, because to me, there's just, there's no real play with, with time or anything. That's literally a film where a woman is unhappy and wanting to be what she thinks this other woman is, as opposed to like these two women who have sort of this magical bond And are shifting through time and shifting through personas together.
4: It's been a long time since I've seen Desperately Seeking Susan. I remember like a magic act. And I want to say that the Madonna character might not even really acknowledge the Rosanna Arquette character. Is that true?
0: Oh, God. See, it's been (laughs) several years since I've seen it. It's... Usually if I'm going to watch, um, it's Susan Seidelman, correct? Who directed that? If yes. I, if I'm going to go to my go-to film with her, has always been *Smithereen*. So I've seen that one a little more recently than I have seen desperately seeking Susan. No, there is a magician sect. I know she was like the lovely assistant. I've had this memory that she acknowledges the care. There was arcade character like towards the end, but I mean, don't, I would not sign like anything in blood on that. It's just been, it's been too long. It wasn't, it wasn't a, a huge favorite of mine. I didn't hate it or anything. I mean, it's just, you know, meh. But uh, I don't know, Chris, what, what films did you think of? Were there any films you thought of while watching this?
3: So one film comes to mind for me. There are some other kind of parts of other films. And, and this is more of a one half of this movie reminds me of one half, one third of another movie. And that's Funny Games by Michael Haneke. Uh, especially towards the end of the film, I mean, at the end of Funny Games, the the two main you know, the two main sadistic killers are kind of like, no, we're gonna do this our way. We're not allowing the narrative to push us. We're gonna push the narrative. And at the end, you know, in the later third last hour of Selene and Julie go boating, there's that same. We are not content with the narrative going the way that it is. We need to mold and shape the narrative to our own satisfaction, and I, uh, you know, at the end of Funny Games and, and throughout the film, uh, you kind of get that same same sense that the the characters are not content with the world around them, and they 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 want to be in control of it to the point where they literally break the constructs of film, especially in Funny Games, you know, with the with the remote control rewinding the film, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern a little bit, you know, that's the same kind of two characters that. They're in this constant loop. I remember at the end of Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, I can't remember which character, uh, which is embarrassing considering how much I love the, the play in the movie, says, you know, oh, if we had just said like one different thing, this whole thing would have been different. We'll get it next time. Like it's the acknowledgement of the loop. And, and, you know, we'll get it next time. And then obviously they never they never get it next time. And that, that again, I think because of the way Celine and Julie go boating is kind of broken up almost into... Kind of three separate films. I can't think of anything that's similar to the first or second film, but the final third of the film is similar to other stuff, but the other two parts are kind of their own thing. Yeah,
4: I kind of got a Rosencrantz and Guildenstern a little bit as well, especially the whole like behind the scenes kind of stuff, because, you know, Hamlet is playing out and will intersect with their story, but really it is their story. So it's kind of those moments where. You know, what are we expected to do at this particular place and them having to play these roles? But yeah, they never get that opportunity like Celine and Julie had to break out of that. And that's one of the things that I like about Celine and Julie is that they are able to change their destiny and they are able to rescue the little girl.
0: Oh Absolutely. One film that I have to say, Mike, that you pointed me towards, because I didn't think of it while watching Celine and Julie, because I hadn't seen it, and I wasn't really that familiar with it, was uh, was it Eduardo Di Gregorio's uh, Surreal, a.k.a. Surreal Estate?
4: Yeah. Now, I'd read about that one a long time ago and had heard that it was a good companion piece. Well, one, because that Gregorio co-wrote or was one of the writers on *Celine and Julie and had written with Rivette on some other things. And then even one of the actresses, Marie-France Pizier, uh, I believe is how you would say her last name. Um, She's one of the main characters in Surreal Estate. So I'm very curious what you guys thought about that one.
0: I will admit my copy did not have English language subtitles, but you do have the Colin Redgrave character who's British. So I, I had to make do with that. Visually, it's gorgeous. There's a lot of great color composition. Like it's you know, everything's very interestingly lit. You have a lot of mirrors. That come into play, which I could definitely see tying to Celine and Julie, because you know, like Mike, you mentioned earlier, that, that you know, there's a little bit of mirrors. And of course, the the idea of a mirror itself as reflected image is like almost like a circular image, which was perfect for anything that's dealing with like Laurent or per, or personas or personalities too. I was yeah, Radley Metzger always uses really great use of reflections and mirrors too you know, to think about how a character's, you know, their personality and all, you know, and the flip of that. I thought it was really interesting. I don't really, I think it's tonally very different for the most part than Celine and Julie. You do have a great cast because uh, you have Marie France-Pizier. You also have, um, and I'm probably going to butcher her name, Boulet Ogier, who is Camille in Celine and Julie. She's also in Surreal, And, uh, and coincidentally, and I guess still is married to Barbée Schroeder. She's Barbet Schroeder's uh, wife in real life. So that's, And then you have, of course, uh, Leslie Caron, who was in Gigi, you know, um, and Lily and, you know, a few Hollywood films, The American in Paris. And you get to see her murder a living lobster, which I was not prepared for. (laughs) That was like, Leslie Caron, (laughs) no, you were Gigi, don't do that. I thought it was really, I thought it was very interesting. You know, the Colin Redgrave character is kind of a bit of a pill. You kind of, you're just automatically more drawn to the women in the film. Like, because I think, I mean, is he the, I mean from my memory, he's the only man in the film or at least the only major male character. And he's just kind of a, he's kind of just a sort of a terrible person, just pretentious writer, you know, who, you know, ends up kind of physically assaulting to the girls and he's just sort of horrible. And the the girls seem a little more intriguing, like all three of them, because Caron's character is almost the most mysterious of them all. So, um, so I thought, I thought it was very interesting. I, I, I would, there are certain elements that it shares with Celine and Julie, but I think they're two different animals, personally.
3: I think when you have a film that's as good as Celine and Julie go boating, and then you have it's kind of a piece that is related to it but isn't. I think that kind of put me in a in a mindset to kind of already have some preconceived notions about what this film was going to entail. And you know, it was it was okay. It looked nice. <laughs> that's for sure. It was it was a nice to look at film, but. I don't know, like like you mentioned, the the, the male character in the film was kind of just so off putting that I I really did gravitate towards the female characters, and it was it was an interesting companion piece, but it kind of lacks some of the gravitas that Rivette brings to a film. That's for sure.
4: I definitely was on the side of the women in this, and the man is so easily manipulated uh, because they just keep. Playing one against the other, against the other, and it's funny that uh, Arion and Agatha, the uh, the two women who are played by the same two women who were living in the house story of Celine and Julie one of them is playing a ghost at first and then she's not. And then there are these seductresses and stuff. But yet it seems to me like the Celeste character is really the one who's manipulating everything. And she's supposed to be like the innocent housekeeper kind of thing. And then the way that she kind of disappears at the end and leaves, uh, Corin Redgrave there in front of his typewriter with his, the same picture of him up on the wall. It almost seems like, she's a ghost and like kind of cursed him to stay at this house. I mean, that's kind of one of the interpretations I was getting because again, we have this grand old country house, definitely a different style than the house in Selene and Julie. But this whole idea of like this kind of haunted house and this, you know, like what's real, what's not real. I found them to be interesting comparisons, but yeah, there's definitely not that, that sense of fun in uh surreal estate.
0: Plus his character is so terrible. I just feel like if that's his fate, then I feel like the ghosts are cursed. Like, I feel like he's not the cursed one. <laughs> like the, the dead are cursed with him. Um, I will say, I mean, I thought everybody was good in their, their roles, but I thought Marie-France Pizier was especially, just magnetic i mean she was like the one actress who I, you know other than leslie caron that i was super familiar with because of course you know over here in the states, she did like the other side of midnight and french postcards and a few other things and um she she to me in this film has like a gene Tierney type quality almost she reminded me a lot of gene Tierney, which is never a bad thing
4: no she had a very elegant beauty to yeah, her yeah
0: and just the way that she carries herself too um which is why she was kind of perfectly cast in Celine and julie because her character sophie is kind of that like 40s era lady of the house kind of character and, and she just pulls pulls it off just eloquently
4: the other one that people made comparisons between Celine and Julie with was one that I was not familiar with at all until just the other day it was uh, based on a book by called The Invention of Morale and there were, have been at least two feature film versions of it and I managed to track down the Italian version from 1974 which was uh, directed by Amito Greco and just to summarize it for you guys it's basically a, a guy comes to an island and there are these people who are on the island and, and the guy, um, our main character is a fugitive and we don't necessarily find out Uh, exactly what he did i think we do in the book but not necessarily in the movie and he watches these people he hides from these people eventually he starts to see them doing the same things and as we're watching this we figure out that they are all projections of some sort of phantasmagorical film machine where they are Living in a projection that takes place, like it kind of repeats after a period of a few days on this island and they just play out the exact same thing every single time. And our main character ends up, of course, he's a man, he ends up falling in love with one of the projections. And, you know, there can never be, you know, he can never really interact with anybody on here and it's just kind of an interesting it was a very interesting film i have to say and there it seems like there's some radiation that's going on because he starts to get speaking of you know, the gray faces he starts to get this gray face as the movie progresses and it gets worse and worse and uh yeah it was 1974 that it was made and so, again, it was kind of an interesting thing to see in 74 this and Celine and Julie both coming out. Of course, as I'm watching The Invention of Morel, for some reason, I guess it was the island and just the mystery. I kept thinking of Lost for some reason. And I was just like, wow, this would have made a whole lot more sense than, you know, people being in purgatory. But hey, that's just me. I
3: had to hold my tongue. making a lost joke and there was an island a mysterious island with people on it and is there a smoke monster mike did you watch lost did you watch lost by accident mike you're in a safe space here you can tell there
4: was it's funny because he hears this music and so i was thinking of when they get that broadcast transmission of who was it uh benny goodman and i was like oh yeah i remember that but no, this was so much better, and it was only like less than two hours, so it didn't. It wasn't like you wasted six years, years of your life watching it. So,
0: since I haven't seen this film, I'm curious, Mike. Did because to me, it sounds like Elements are like The Tempest a little bit too. Did, was there anything in that film that reminded you of The Tempest?
4: I guess I could see that, especially just with the whole island <laughs> thing. But I, I can't say that I'm that familiar with The ah. Tempest. So, other than the what was it the John Cassavetes oh, movie? <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs> You I I would not call that an accurate <laughs> an accurate interpretation of the of the of the play. Um it's interesting. I'll I'll give it that. Yeah, yeah, no. No, I would I would go to Derek Jarman. His interpretation maybe I I haven't seen it in a long time, but it's beautiful. That's a, a really great anybody's curious about which versions of the Tempest to see, uh the Jarman one's quite good. How about
4: Prospero's books?
0: You know, I've never seen that. And that's weird. I had I should have seen that. There are like certain films that I'm like, how how have I not seen this? That's on the list.
4: (laughs) All right, we're going to take another break and play a preview for next week's show.
2: comment tu depuis le temps que je te connais je lis sur ton visage dis-moi la vérité
0: That's right. We'll be back next week with another French film, Franju's Eyes Without a Face, where I'll be joined by Maitland McDonough and Alexandra West. Before we go, however, I'd like to thank this week's guest co-hosts, Heather and Chris. Heather, what's new in your world?
3: I was just interviewed over at the Directors' Club about the history of music video, which you can hear over at directorsclubpodcast dot com. Also, my article on Horg Butgarite's serial killer film Shram, is up and live at Diaaboliquemagaine dot com, as well as my interview with writer and musician Mike Edison for my own site, Mondo Heather.
0: And how about you, Chris?
4: Well, you can hear me twice a week over on the Culture Cast over at Cultureshocked.com, where we talk all variety of movies. This month, we are talking solely about martial arts films such as Game of Death and Ip Man, and we've had Mike on a couple times this month as well. Coming up, we are talking about the film that thought a white-haired Christopher Lambert was a good idea in Mortal Kombat, and also the film that made Steven Seagal into a cook in Under Siege. You can follow me over on Twitter as well, at Culture. Stash.
0: thanks again for coming on i'll be sure to link to your sites over at projection-booth.com be sure to come on over and visit the site where you can find links to the projection booth's patreon where you can donate a few bucks into the itunes site where you can rate and review the show remember every rating helps the projection booth take over the world
2: What that means, I don't know A dream Too tired To come true Left a rebel without a clue And I'm searching for something to do If it's just a game
3: cinema blind spots
4: it is,
0: yeah that would be a great podcast name i was
3: gonna say mike you just came up with the best podcast name i could think of
4: <laughs> i'm sure it's already taken i'm sure the concept already exists this week we take two film fans who say they're really film fans but they've never seen certain films that they need to see
3: oh shit it already exists <laughs> chris
4: statue talks about lethal weapon
3: oh god other,
4: he talks about prospero's books <laughs>
3: It's not Cinema Blind Spots, it's Cinema Blind Spot. Oh, okay. Yeah, it does exist. It does exist. It does exist. And their most recent podcast was Deep Rising. So
0: So no Lethal Weapon or Prospero's books, huh? That's Uh, not a blind spot.
3: (laughs) uh, It may blind you with its greatness if you watch it. (laughs) Fantastic. I don't know what you're talking about.
0: (laughs) (laughs) oh god that's sort of like saying oh i haven't seen the steven seagal vampire movie that's not a blind yeah. spot that's a gift that's wait a... is that a thing yes I... what yes i uh my brain is trying to pull up the title and it's like a repressed memory like if you went to a satanic daycare in the 80s <laughs> <laughs> there's a steven
3: seagal vampire film
4: mike you didn't I'm tell me about of
0: this it, so
3: this is news to me jesus it...
0: I, I've, I've sadly I have seen it. It was, it was several years ago. But uh, when you have friends,
4: against the dark.
0: Against, oh. It's it's hilarious. I mean, it's terrible. I do not advocate watching it. But it's funny how much they try to mask. That's my main memory of it, actually, is how much they're trying to mask Sigal's like... Because he's kind of, like, a heftier dude now. There's nothing wrong with that. He's middle-aged. The body changes. But, like, he's always in the shadows. It's like a floating head. You just have like this floating, like, Zartar's head of, of Stephen Seagal trying to attack vampires. It is. <laughs> it is... It is really... If you if if I imagine that's what a head trauma looks like, you know, it's that. it's that's what a head trauma looks like. Is it is it gets the dark with Steven Seagal?
3: <laughs> I'm gonna be honest. You saying Seagal vampires, middle aged fat men, and Zardoz in the same sentence. You have sold me on that film.
0: Oh God, <laughs> this is my devil tree, Chris. Don't let it fool you. This is my curse. <laughs>
3: <laughs> I'll watch that before I watch Lethal Weapon and further perpetuate the problem that is the movies that I watch. So
4: <laughs> I, I forgot. Deep Rising is actually a good film. It's the one that Steven Summers did, and uh, yeah, there's some some actual good parts to that. that so it's
3: got uh, his for forever perpetual uh, castmate Kevin J. Kevin O'Connor. Kevin J. O'Connor. Kevin yes. J. O'Connor. That man is in every single uh, Summers film. Is what it feels like. He's shoehorned in there. Nothing
4: wrong with that, man. Uh, Kevin J. O'Connor is fantastic. That's where I'm going to drop in the, hey, O'Connell, you're on the wrong side (laughs) of the river. Oh, what's the? uh, Yeah, but we got all the horses. Oh, God. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's that's what's going to go right there.
3: Oh, God. There you go.
4: I don't know how I
3: Selene and Julie go boating to The Mummy. So yes. it has come full not a, circle. <laughs> not a line from Color
4: of Night, unfortunately. So another great Kevin J. O'Connell role.
3: So sidebar, and you can edit this part out, Mike. That movie I was oh. thinking about earlier, the one I couldn't figure out that I thought was chain reaction, was Chill <laughs> Factor with Kevin J. O'Connell.
4: Oh, nice. Chill Factor. Yeah, Nice.
3: Skeet Ulrich and Cuba Gooding Jr. as a... Ice and cream, then they man.
4: went and they both did movies separately about uh, uh, sled dogs, which was kind of crazy to me. <laughs> one did like nine below, and the other one did chili dogs or something <laughs> like that.
3: I believe is chili dogs the one where Cuba Gooding Jr. is in the hot dog I'm eating not contest. Sure.
4: If if that film doesn't exist, it needs to. <laughs> this week on Cinema <laughs> Blind Spot,
3: <laughs> Cuba Gooding Jr. falling on hard times, eating chili dogs for money. On Actually, screen. didn't get paid. He just made it back in chili dogs. <laughs> they paid him in chili. Yeah, they just paid him in chili I dogs. I sure am hungry. <laughs> I'm sorry that we derailed your podcast. That's, <laughs> That's what editing is for.
0: That, this is the bleakest worldview ever. This chili dogs thing. This is so dark. <laughs> I, I
3: want this to exist now. Like when I get enough money, I'm gonna pitch this to Cuba Gooding Jr. Be like, excuse me, Mr. Jr. Um
0: <laughs> I, are you gonna are you got to pitch him the part where he's only getting paid in chili dogs? Dude? I mean,
3: I feel like if he if he wasn't expecting that, he's I don't know what he's even talking to me for. Well, Mister Mister Junior, we have this great opportunity for you, but you're only getting paid in chili.
4: If he dogs. won't take it, I think either Stephen Baldwin or Stephen Segal would. <laughs> oh shit.
0: Seagal, let me tell you, you just give him a KFC double down, that dude'll do it. Oh
3: glad. my god, this is this is like it's so harsh. This is so harsh. I'm this sorry. Is, this is harshing my vibe right now with Steven Seagal. I yeah. was like riding high on that, marked for death, all those like great films, and then just he's a fat piece of shit who likes double <laughs> down.
0: Yeah, I never, I never said that. I mean,
3: two <laughs> seconds. Away. Not in so many words. <laughs> Not in so many. Yeah. we're two seconds away from just being like, "Hey, Steven Seagal, I got some corn dogs in the back of my trunk. You want to come <laughs> eat them and do some karate?" <laughs> mm-hmm.
4: <laughs> We're all just puppets yeah. in some Madman's
3: game. <laughs> we're, all just, we're all just puppets, and damn, I need a fucking corn dog.
0: <laughs> now, see, I would watch that. Now, I would actually be tempted to watch the golf film where he has the line, and I want a fucking corn dog. <laughs> <laughs> and I feel like revet is going to haunt us all, by the way. <laughs> I'm
3: telling you, I- when I. When I hit it big in Hollywood, you're going to see a movie. It's just going to be called Corn Dogs, and it's going to have Steven Seagal on the cover with two corn dogs in each hand wearing a Nehru jacket, Ah, ah,
0: ah. (laughs) a red
3: and yellow Nehru jacket, red and yellow. Nice. One on one side, one
4: (laughs) on the other. Oh, yeah.
0: Nice. Oh, God. Is it going to be corn dogs or corn dogs with a Z? (laughs) Corn
3: corn
4: dogs with a Z.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Corn dogs with a Z. I think that works better.
0: I like it. You could have a rap battle in there. Yeah.
3: It'll be, hey, wow. it'll be a, uh, so it'll be a fight between Casper Van Dien and Steven Seagal as to who can eat more corn dogs. <laughs> and the person that they're vying and the person that they, that they're trying to impress is Natasha Hendricks. And Hen, wow. yeah, she's like, yeah. or maybe like Jolene Blaylock. <laughs> <laughs> Nice. <laughs> i just trying to think of like the most like low tier actresses who are in all those like sci-fi original features. So. Nancy Butler. Ooh,
0: wow. Oh come great. on,
3: she, you don't need to kick Nancy Butler while she's down.
0: Yeah, she, <laughs> she's been. I, I like I, don't, I like Nancy Butler. Let's not <laughs> let's not sully her with corn dogs. <laughs> corn
3: dogs. <laughs> A Casper Van Dien Steven Segal joint. Oh, God. <laughs> 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 I, is so dirty. Directed by Dean yeah.
4: Kane. Oh God!
3: Oh, you had to throw Dean Kane in there, huh? Just, yeah, you yeah. monster.
4: I didn't go Lou Diamond Phillips. I did not go Lou Diamond Phillips.
0: Uh, I'd also like to pitch the Ghost of Jim Varney has a small, a pivotal role as a uh, a rival corndog <laughs> dog stand owner.
4: We're actually oh we're going to be covering a Jim Varney film later on in the year, but nobody knows it.
6: Ooh.
4: Yeah. Oh, that's a. It's wow. a political musical called Existo.
3: I thought it was a political musical called Ernest, go- Ernest Goes to D.C.
4: Now <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm disappointed. It's like Mr. Smith Goes to Washington Ernest, only.
3: Ernest Goes a filibuster in? Yes.
0: Or Billy Jack. Hello. Yep. Some oh, Billy yeah. Jack in there. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. it, All right. Anyways.
3: <laughs> <laughs> Back to actual good movies and not theoretical ones that may or may not <laughs> exist at some point. <laughs>